Hello, everyone, and welcome to a Vassals of King's Graves seminar of Ice and Fire. Today, our topic is monsters. As the basis for our discussion, we'll be using Jeffrey Jerome Cohen's essay, Monster Culture, Seven Theses, the introduction to the collection Monster Theory, Reading Culture. We've posted a link to the reading in the show notes if you want to follow along. And if you do, I will offer a brief content warning, especially about Thesis 3, which includes discussions of demonization, othering, and violence against a number of racial, religious, and cultural groups. I am your host, Sarah, aka Dr. Blood, and today I am joined by Ben, King Juicio on the Discord forums, Varley, Hello, <laughs> Peter, Hey, this is Peter, I'm also known as Shellfish, Wilson, Hello, Wilson here. And Patrick. Greetings, fellow monsters. It is I, Patrick the Toll. All right, wonderful. As I mentioned, the basis for our discussion today will be Cohen's essay, Monster Culture, which is widely recognized as one of the foundational works in the field of monster studies. In this essay, Cohen argues that monsters are good sources of culturally relevant information and makes the case for a, quote, method of reading cultures by the monsters they engender. In other words, he argues that monster studies makes it possible to gain important insights into a culture by looking closely at what they consider monstrous and why and how they articulate and represent those monstrosities. In the discussion, he outlines seven defining characteristics of what he's calling monsters, which include the monster's body is a cultural body, the monster always escapes, the monster is a harbinger of category crisis, the monster dwells at the gates of difference, the monster polices the borders of the possible, the fear of the monster is really a kind of desire, and the monster stands at the threshold of becoming. Using these seven theses and Cohen's elaborations on them as a background, the main aim of our discussion today is to see what we can uncover about the world of A Song of Ice and Fire by taking Cohen's suggestion and looking at its monsters, those figures, both expected and possibly unexpected, who seem to fit these criteria for monstrosity in meaningful or revealing ways. So to start our discussion today, I'm going to take a cue from Creature Chat and ask all of my co-hosts how they would have defined monster or monstrous before reading this article, just what that term uh, meant for them or what it evoked. Something frightening? I think more than frightening, something that's like uh, otherworldly, kind of. Like something so evil well something that's evil i guess that works too like a freak or an aberration i would say something like that devours or something gluttonous like i call my baby and my wife monsters almost daily (laughs) do they devour your life essence (laughs) every last second of it the the wildling family dynamic in the barley household (laughs) Uh, I think um, I've always seen it as like an embodiment of some sort of fear or or uncertainty. Like uh, the fairy tale-esque idea of a monster is, yeah. Yeah, that's the point I was going to make, dude. You read my mind. Uh, It's something you are afraid of or 
cannot quite quantify, but it fills you with dread. That's what a monster is. Okay, great. So something sounds like there's a moral dimension to monsters, maybe that it's something you shouldn't want or you shouldn't do or you shouldn't become. Um, it's something frightening. It's something other, something besides what we're accustomed to or comfortable with. Um, or Farley's family, I guess. <laughs> well, I think it's something you define, right? That's what he goes through this whole thing, uh, <clears throat> especially in, you know, uh, the thesis three where he brings up where he does bring up the different races and um religions that have been quote monsterized as being viewed as another or something so it's a monster is whatever you make it yeah so it's something that that we can create on purpose even right like for a for a specific um, motivation or specific um yeah purpose um, yeah, like uh, I suppose the Romans consider the other peoples barbarians, and I suppose that sort of thinking is prevalent in other historical periods as well. And like the idea that the people of the other village over the hill are like strange and different from us, and we should fear and revile them because of that. Right, like it's like uh, one person's monster is another person being demonized. Or the it brings me to like um, early nineteenth century propaganda and stuff like Japanese people are Germans shown as like just monstrous in a way that they weren't necessarily. Well, that's way. like a, uh, like all war propaganda is to like well, demonize yeah. the enemy to make it seem like. Especially, like, I think in the Revolutionary War, they call them uh, redcoats or rabbits just because, like, to think of them as humans would, you know, set off, like, a moral hazard. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's dehumanized. Sorry, moral injury, not moral hazard. Two different things. Yeah, I definitely, I quite enjoy looking at propaganda posters. I follow this subreddit called R Propaganda Posters, and I enjoy looking at those, like, very monstrous depictions of other other nationalities and or groups and it's really interesting it's almost like a very pure form of art maybe because it's so nakedly trying to persuade you to think of somebody else as like a venomous snake or like a a demon basically so uh if you've read something about uh, a person called eric Baumann, he's a he's a He's a sociologist, uh, and he thinks uh, that monsters, at least those propaganda things you do, and the way you rationalize uh, that other groups or another village is is bad, is sort of like a a cultural con- conservatism that is after rationalizing your uh, your place in in ge- geographically. So so monsters per se could also be be like the way the ne- the narrative around this conservatism uh, i think also well so we think of monsters as as frightening um as something that we don't want around right but if we're if we're constructing them as a way of defining what we're not whether that's cultural or or racial or geographical then they might almost be a source of comfort, right? It might almost make us feel better to think that we're not monsters. Like that's not us. That's not who we are. Um, so there's a there's like a distancing to it, even though creating that creature kind of generates its own 
threat. Yeah, that's uh, Henry Teufel in the negative social identity theory, where you go through the, the stages, and the, one of the final stages is rationalization of your own, of what you are and how you belong into your own group by defining what the other groups are uh, that you are not, or that your group is not. So trying to find all the faults in the other groups so that you feel more secure in your own choice or your own place in society. Can we think of an example of that kind of monsterization, that like socio-political propaganda in A Song of Ice and Fire? Do we think that's operating? I think a pretty clear example of like a national other in A Song of Ice and Fire would be the Bloody Mummers, as they are from all the different free cities and SOs, and they are these kind of, uh, this sort of carnival of these different sorts of bright and colorful and frightening people from across the sea, like riding zebras and the Viheri Ibanese and the Lorathi with their brightly colored hair and the Dothraki guy as well. And they're like very visually other very clearly. Mm. I was thinking of the wolves uh, and how people describe um, the Starks in the South. Especially like um, just the uh, Joffrey and and the type of things he goes into when talking about uh, what's his name Rob to Sansa. Yeah, oh, he's like, like a shapeshifter. He's a yeah, yeah. There's there's all these like reports of like oh yeah he's a he because he rides the wolf into battle he's like a monster you know like yeah I think the Battle of Oxcross where the Lannister forces lost the battle. Joffrey says that they like fell upon the the Lannister dead like wolves and ate their flesh and like that's definitely a good example of the propaganda aspect of it. Well, yeah, during the wasn't that like the uh, justification for the Red Wedding too? Is they all turned into wolves but were put had to be put down because of that? I don't remember. Yeah, that. I don't remember I, that either. Yeah, I was gonna say. Well, at least it's also other, also another example. Uh, the wildlings, wildlings in general, are also quite uh, arbitrarily put as 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 lesser or wilder than 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 uh, the society south of the wall. Um, as John uh, experiences when he starts, you know, befriending them or at least trying to befriend them. But I think that's kind of similar with the bloody mummers. That there's kind of a mixture of the narrative actually depicting the wildlings as different and monsters like the cannibalistic cave dwellers and I mean they are I think I would consider them quite monsters like and the things that the bloody mummers get up to as well I mean they there's definitely like that feeling that they are unfairly depicted as monsters but then there's also some things that George slips in that uh, and Craster as well. I think that that is very morally well, the, repugnant. I like well, the wild wildlings in general. The wildlings hate Craster. They call him. Egret uh, says that she's Craster's more like um, uh, what what is it? Uh, Southerners to them than to a wildling. They don't claim Craster. They they don't want to be like Craster. 
just to yeah. back up my prior statement about the Red Wedding, um, Jared, the Red Wedding was a young wolf's work. He changed into a beast before our eyes and tore out the throat of my cousin Jingle Bell, a harmless simpleton. He would have slain my lord father, too, if Sir Wendell had not put himself in the way. Davos, is it your claim that Rob Stark killed Wendell Manderley? Jared, and many more. Mine own son Tidos was among them, and my daughter's husband. When Stark changed into a wolf, his Northmen did the same. The mark of the beast was on them all. The wargs birthed other wargs with a bite. It is well known. It was all my brothers and I could do to put them down before they slew us all. Wow. I cool. That's remember a that scene from White Harbor, isn't it? Yeah. That's yes. Jared Frey, right? Oh, man, I missed that. <laughs> That's yeah. cool. The fact that they blame, blame, blame Wendell's death on him. That's so... Ah. But Okay, so so there was also... I think there's a difference between the... Bloody Mummers and the the wildlings in that I think that the Bloody Mummers are sort of embracing the the trauma of of getting marginalized in in, in that society by uh, yeah embracing the monstrosity of themselves. They sort of like grow their own type of diaspora diaspora uh, so that it it's sort of uh, yeah they, they they see monsters and they revel in the the idea of them being monstrous themselves well for them it's a, it's a selling point almost isn't it like that yeah you know, it kind of accentuates their their marketability um as being these kind of like marauding horrors um yeah, so that's kind of similar with your own great joy i think victorian uh, even explicitly thinks of your own screw as mutes and monsters and he's also kind of gathered or recruited these kind of uh very frightening and different to the Westerosi eye looking people around mm. him, probably reveling in the idea that he's going to frighten everyone with these people. That's really interesting, that idea of like self monsterization, right? Or the kind of self self othering. Um I wonder if I, I almost feel like Danny is taking a part of that on herself too, right? As she starts um dressing in the Dothraki clothes again, like when she kind of sheds the the veneer of civilization that she's put on trying to get support and just goes back to, you know, her, her Dothraki roots, which are not really her roots, which is like a whole different, <laughs> a whole different aspect of Danny that might also be pertinent here, but, um, but she embraces that alterity. And I think in the, in the end of the last book, it definitely is when she hears Jorah's like, the dragon's not what you are, do you? And that was her kind of, you know, becoming the monster that we might see. Yeah, but that's that's just well for her at least. That isn't that also just like well maybe that's also for the bloody mamas that she has been labeled <laughs> for a long while as less uh, cultured, primitive, something like that, and she's just if any person was com- uh, constantly negatively labeled at some point, if they couldn't see any way out of it. They would just sort of embrace it because why would you bother trying to aspire to more if everyone else is just putting you down all the time? Oh, that's a good point. That's what Jamie does with the Kingslayer title. Oh yeah, that's one of the ideas. If if anyone's interested in in those that sort of theory is that's Henry Teufel in the the uh, negative social identity theory is really good uh, to explain a lot of negative uh, uh, behavior in society in general. That's an interesting point. I was thinking when you mentioned Danny as, you know, possibly being viewed as a monster. I think personal dread or things we're afraid of, um, 
you know, haunting us or or being sort of like a characteristic that is outside ourselves. Um, that's something personal. I think Danny, in her personal journey, does fight a lot of those perceptions that others might have of her. But um, as far as a society, I don't know if we've seen any active demonization of uh, of Danny in the courts in the South. So like the um, the Lannisters, when they speak of her, or maybe they haven't spoke of, spoken of her enough to demonize her as other, because there are a lot of things they can use um, with her Targaryen heritage to demonize her as foul, as others, not true of Seven Kingdoms. I'm thinking of like incest or eventually the dragons and all those other things. Um, so that might be interesting to, to see, or has it happened? I don't remember in the books if well, Danny Robert refers to I think Robert would be the character. Yeah. 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 And also, I don't think Cersei would necessarily be harking on the whole incest thing. <laughs> Throwing those stones, Cersei. <laughs> yeah, that's a um, good point. I oh, Cersei. Think you know, never known to. for her hypocritical views. That's <laughs> fair. <laughs> I see uh, Robert as having a personal hatred for the Targaryens. I don't think Robert was politically savvy at all. He just hated Rhaegar, and for a personal reason as well. But um, when you mentioned the Starks earlier, I thought of demonization of an outside group. The Starks are not very political. They're not in court. They keep to themselves. And so that has been used against them many times uh, in demonizing them as other. And then it comes in handy after the Red Wedding. When they start to say, well, you know, they're not really like us in the Seven Kingdoms. They can change mm-hmm. into animals. That's the only way, um, what's his name, the guy, it, the Frey guy's story could be plausible at all because yeah. the Starks are always, you know, separate-ish kind of. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I I think we see in um, Quentin's storyline that the rumors are starting to filter through about Danny, like that she kills envoys and you know i mean we kind of hear her like that she sleeps with you know everybody and and there are these again sort of kernels of truth that are coming through in these rumors but that um you know she is she is getting sort of increasingly vilified and increasingly othered as the story um the story progresses but i think that that's something we haven't really seen pay off yet which is interesting so um, I was going to bring up the Dornish in uh, Darien's day when Darien, the young dragon, was king. Um, the Dornish were seen as the other because they never submitted, and it became a political cry. You know, like no, um, what was it? No union without submission or something. Um, and they they used that as a pretext for the campaign in Dornish. Um, and even in uh, Robert's day and the present day Westeros. The Dornish are always seen as kind of a part, and it's used in, you know, political uh, as a political instrument against them um, for various reasons. I think. So I don't know if that is part of when we think of monsters in society or the other. Uh, eventually, it turns into something more tangible, where it can be used against a certain group within the context of the bigger society, which is Westeros. So I thought of Dorn in that aspect. So, yeah, I definitely I agree with that, that Dawn has, is seen as kind of a realm apart in West, mm. Westeros, and if you think about, like, for example, the song The Dornishman's Wife, 
mean, I guess there's the kind of like a bit of like the desire for the other as well, like, but they are seen as this kind of um, kingdom apart from the other kingdoms, even more so than the North, I think. Yeah, I I think that this sort of idea of, you know, people being monsterized, monsterized or make, made to, to be the other is can be you know culminate in in actual animosity and and war but if if you go the other way as as it is with dawn they have tried to heal the relationship i think that uh, you could also just see it as sort of like a a sort of orientalization of of them they've sort of it's now it's more like enticing slash it's, it's different they can tell stories that are not necessarily racist, so to say. Yeah, I still, agree with that. Like the Dornish uh, are kind of sometimes kind of defined to others by their, I suppose, supposed sensuality or something like that. Yeah. And they think that they're kind of like spicy or something. Yeah, it's it's uh, we we see them in 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 see that in 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 our world as well with different sort of a. Uh, cultures in in asia for example and and uh the southern europe also has been uh orient orientalized in that way um it's a uh, it's quite interesting to see that that if you if you don't necessarily fear them you'll still uh, try to categorize them in in an as easy way as possible and and sort of get lured in by the the differentness of them I mean, I, Cohen brings that up as as one of the theses, right? The thesis six is the fear of the monster is really a kind of desire. And I think that it's very interesting to see, especially among the cultural groups, um, which ones are more scary and which ones are more enticing, right? So, you know, the, like the, the Pentoshi are, are enticing or the, you know, the Dornish or the, but the, the wildlings are not at all. And mm. I wonder if that's like, I wonder what, what kind of dictates that, whether it's um, political expedience, like whether we do or do not want them to be a part of the lands that we incorporate or whether it's like tied to their environment, like. Yeah, it's the cold. Yeah, right. Like, I mean. Uh, no one wants to be cold. Everyone right. can go to Pentas. Uh, I think it's, I think it's conflict, basically. It's conflict based. So the, 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 the more, uh, inflamed the conflict is the the less uh, sexy they become and more of an enemy they become hmm. um, yeah so because the Dornish are already arguably incorporated into the seven kingdoms that it, they're like safer maybe or they're more appealing yeah well, define, before... de define safer I think, well is... yeah <laughs> depends on what kind of safety you're looking for. And then we remember before, you know, he cited that the, the times during um, the Young Dragon when they were at their most, like, vilified, when, you know, because it, it had been, like, successive wars that had just failed and hurt Westeros in the end. Yeah, I think so. Especially after... And well. During Darian's time, definitely. But even when Egg, uh, Egg's father was king, 
um, or not father, sorry, his grandfather was king. I forget that king's name. Uh, but during that time also, the Dornish were seen as, or used anyway as an excuse for civil war with, you know, the, uh, the black fires and such, um, as being the other. This reading really brought, or I try to remember, a lot of the stories told about different kingdoms within the Seven Kingdoms. And there seems to be a lot about Dornish, and, you know, they are somewhat spoken of as these excluded regions, maybe because they're far away, or because they're not as involved in court as other families. But they're always seen as, you know, something foreign, um, maybe desirable as well, but always a part, even though they are part of the Seven Kingdoms. Um, and I thought that was interesting uh, when you think about the way monster is described in this reading with being um, an embodiment of things that are outside the norm for the society anyway. Yeah, I feel like the Dornish are uh, the kingdom that has kind of, since they've retained that sort of cultural identity from the Roynar in a lot of ways that they are set apart because of that from the other sort of primarily Andal cultures around them or above them, I suppose. Yeah, I think it helps that they're, like, they're physically surrounded by the mountains of Dorne. So I think you have like subcultures within other kingdoms. Like I'm thinking like the sisters with uh, the people with the webbed toes or like the Far Isles and uh, the Iron Men who can change into orca or whatever um those those are kind of like tamed monsters where they can look at the dornish as kind of separate and not tamed yet um mm. yeah i think oh, sorry, oh no you go ahead <laughs> I, I was just gonna say i think it's so interesting that even though the definition of monster that we put forward was you know the very kind of like it's a creature it's non-human it's uh, the the majority of the examples so far that we've had from *A Song of Ice and Fire* are are sociopolitical, right? They're sociopolitical, propagandistic othering for the most part. And um, I mean, I think that says something pretty telling about the the world of Westeros, at least that that's their primary concern, at least in the in the sort of circles that we see represented, right? So that even though it is a world that's populated by like actual creatures. Um, that the the thing that comes to the fore um, here is is that political. I don't know. It just strikes me as really interesting because I you know I sort of expected it to go the other way when we started, but um, but yeah, that's, that's cool. Yeah, we, we've been talking a lot about the different kingdoms viewing each other a certain way, but if we were to simply talk about the monsters in a Song of Ice and Fire, I think I would uh, put like Ramsay and like. Uh, Ramsey Bolton and Joffrey and Greco Glegay into the forefront. And I don't see Joffrey as a, master, a monster, personally. Explain. Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I, I see him as a damaged child. He, he does monstrous things, but I don't see him the same way I view Gregor Clegane or, or Ramsey, you know, I, I, I just don't. Or someone like Amory Lorch, who, you know, stabbed Rainey's 50 times. I, yeah, I think those examples, like, those frighten me. Uh, Ramsey, I would not want to be on his bad side. But he is, like, his kind of evil is not unexpected in the Seven Kingdoms. It's brutal, 
um, and people speak of them with horror, but it's not something that binds any community together in fear of him. More like, well, maybe maybe that's not the case, but it's it's more like it's uh, it's part of the brutality in that world. Um, I would disagree with that. I think Ramsey is very much beyond the pale, even for Westeros. Like he's referred to as a beast in human skin, and his uh, exploits are thought of with horror as well. I mean, I guess Boltons do have that reputation of uh, flaying their enemies, and they are still around and kind of a reputable house almost. But I think yeah. Ramsey is just like beyond the pale, as I said. I mean, I think the fact that it's even debatable for either one of those, and I and I would suggest that it is, and, you know, I'm not going to get into this again, but I think I've, I've made a similar point about Magor in the past, that, <laughs> that um, I mean, I think that says something, too, about how how extreme behaviors and, and, you know, choices can be in this world and still potentially be inside the boundaries of the society, right, that... Um, that you can do the kinds of things that, you know, the mountain does or, or Ramsey or the mad King or Joffrey or the mad King. Right. And still maybe not be a monster to a lot of people. I mean, that's, that's pretty Mm. incredible. Well, Yeah. Sarah, to your point, like no one said Tywin or Tyrion. I think Tyrion is the greatest example of someone who is monsterized by other people. Well, I think his, He's like a Richard III kind of monsterizer. I think uh, Cohen brings that up. Like uh, his physical deformity gives uh, proof to his monsters. But like what they do is no less monstrous than, you know, Clegane, who is the mad dog of Tywin. Like Tywin unleashes him to do, you know, what he does on the Riverlands. Um, I think it's interesting that like a lot of the characters can do monstrous things, but you know we kind of tend to gravitate towards the Ramses, the Joffreys, the you know Gregors or Eurons. But uh, there's a lot of you know I mean even Daenerys, like what she does in her retribution against the slavers of Slaver Bay, like is monstrous. I do I do think though that because they are part of the Seven Kingdoms in a legitimate way being part of a house, being part of a great family, I think that their monstrous acts do not elicit the same kind of dread, like societal dread that binds people together. When you think of the monster, the the villagers will pick up their pitchforks and, and uh, torches and everyone is united in haunting the monster mm. because their behavior is so out of the norm, it's so threatening to the society that it binds people together against them. But that kind of fear is not seen against, or that kind of behavior is not seen against uh, Ramsey, for example, because he is a Bolton. If he were a bastard living in the wilds and, you know, carrying out these deeds, I think people will be more apt to bind together and go haunt the monster, you know? Um, and so in this discussion, at least reading through, even though these people that you mentioned, Joffrey, Clegane, and uh, Ramsey, and all these other people, they don't, uh, you know, jump to mind because they are still that they can participate in society in a legitimate way because of their birth or the house that they are bound to, um, but they are not excluded or thought of in the way that you know other groups are. So oh, that's a good uh, point. I do agree with that. Kind of reminds me of something we talked about on the Vampire Cast last week about Elizabeth Bathory and 
the guy who inspired Bluebeard, how they were able to prey on like peasants, but and because of their noble status, they kind of uh, were allowed to just practice monstrous acts in society. Well, I would uh, just disagree with one point. I'll agree with the overall uh, point that you made, but disagree with one point that uh, Roderick Cassell actually did go hunting for Ramsey and thought he had shot and killed him. Mm. So there yeah. was that kind of uh, justice also, against those monstrous abuses at one also, point. Also, I don't think that the, I think that these people also try to hide their monstrosity. So, so sort of it's only when it gets, you know, <laughs> known into per, uh, like polite society uh, that uh, that they they get outed as monsters. Uh, but if if they if it never get discovered, then they're, you know, they can keep on doing whatever whatever they're doing. So I think in that situation, it's yeah, it's sort of the same thing as with with the vampires. Uh, the aristocracy has sort of an armor, so, uh, societal armor. That uh, that makes them impervious to to scrutiny from from the local locals, but not from uh, their peers. I would suggest that Cohen's arguments explain why that might be the case. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of thesis three, the monster is the harbinger of category crisis. Um, and his his argument in that particular thesis is that the monster is a creature or a creation that resists a binary categorization. So, um, you know, there's us and them, but then there's this kind of like third, this radical third term that enters into the picture and complicates everything and, and destabilizes all these differences. And um, I mean, I would suggest that in the case of the the noble houses and, you know, their absolutely grotesque behavior either against each other or particularly against the small folk, that is the binary system operating exactly the way that it's intended to, um, you know, as, as horrifying as that system may be that, you know, the, the idea that a nobleman could hunt a small folk, you know, with impunity is, is built into the system, that kind of privilege. So um, they're not monstrous because they're not outside the system. They're defining the parameters of the system. I mean, to quote Peter, who are the small folk anyway? Um, what have they ever done to, to me? <laughs> well, when I was making that point, I think I was arguing that I didn't care about nameless small folk characters because they weren't people to me. Okay, no, that sounds bad. I mean, <laughs> that, that I cared more about the noble point of view characters because I cared about their emotions rather than like the nameless small folk in River Run or around River Run. Mm-hmm. I think that's when I made that point seven right? years ago. I mean, as a as a world builder, using that soundbite. Sorry. <laughs> as a world builder, you know, I think that's really important because you know if we're looking at it from an external perspective as a reader, this is a world that that builds our expectations very explicitly in that direction, right? Like we don't have a small folk point of view, do we? I mean, we have the wildling, but I mean, he's not exactly like empathetic um, or sympathetic, but I think, I mean, am I wrong? Is that the only like. I would say like Davos is as close as we get probably. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he's made a Lord. So, you know, he's already yeah. from that. I, I would argue that Davos is, monstrous according to a lot of these criteria which is an interesting sort of segue into one of my other questions which was whether 
whether the monster is always bad. Right. No, no, no. But I mean, I think that he, that's what I'm saying. I think that Davos is a category breaker and a, you know, a threshold occupier and a kind of border patroller where he's, you know, a lot of people view him as being within world, view him as being, you know, elevated above his station and not belonging. And like all of the Florent reactions to him are so um, sort of uniform. It makes the nobles very uncomfortable because his existence kind of makes them think of their own status or like the like I suppose like if some if a crabber's son can be made a lord then that kind of puts the whole whole like lordship uh, category into, into question. Yeah. 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 So I mean I think that he does a lot of these very monstrous things that Cohen identifies, but he doesn't make us uncomfortable because it's a it's a paradigm shift that we're accustomed to, I think, from a modern perspective. But in world, I would say a lot of people would find Davos very disconcerting. Mm-hmm. And um, same thing with Braun, I think, right? The fact that like Braun is now, you know, Braun of the Blackwater, that that's that's got to be skin crawling for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Also, I think that's an, that's an interesting thing because uh, to think of, of Braun or uh, Davos. I wouldn't necessarily think that they have sort of like a central side to them necessarily. I was about to make a joke that that Davos was super sexy because he was a monster, but um, that actually didn't. Uh, I didn't actually feel like that uh, when I thought about it. Um, and is that because they reflect more of a modern idea, like something we know and and recognize a little more than uh, than a lot a lot of the other medieval sort of. Uh, sensibilities yeah that idea of the self-made man or the you know yeah, the, the egalitarian yeah. Uh, idea yeah the the social mobility or the maybe yeah i think thyself up by thy bootstraps yeah. and become less sexy <laughs> and become less sexy pull thy up by the bootstraps and become less sexy are you, Patrick, talking about the idea that the monster is also sort of exciting and enticing by referring to Davos as sexy? Yes. Yeah. I think that kind of works for the Hound because he is also a very sort of monstrous in appearance and in some of his behaviors, at least. And he also uh, he kind of resists that categorization as a knight, and he very much like wants to stay on that boundary and I think the kind of the relationship between the hound and Sansa is kind of that beauty and the beast sort of mm-hmm. classic sort of yeah. dynamic there and even even later his friendship with Arya which is not you know an erotic desire necessarily but Arya does have this very conflicted or she does develop this very conflicted attitude towards him I feel where you know she she hates him but also she won't leave him to die you know i mean this kind of like appeal um that that draws her in even though she also hates him for for other reasons um yeah he's very strong-willed at least to like resist or to buck the trend of like not accepting the seven holy oils and being just knighted yeah yeah i think that's such a great and it's and it's interesting that his rejection of knighthood is based explicitly on his experience with his brother who is firmly within the system right so like he that's kind of what i you know reinforces a little bit what i was saying about how the you know the mountain is a good example of like the way the system is supposed to work on some level which is kind of horrifying um but the hound seems to see that as someone who's who's on the periphery 
um, where he can, he can offer like an alternative, I guess, but then also just like a, a fresh perspective on it or a clearer perspective on it because he's refusing to be incorporated into, um, or fully incorporated into that same, that same system. Well, that system was developed, right? Because they just did have these martial people just running around, you know, doing what they wanted. And so they enforced this or created this, these rules of chivalry of how you should, you know, behave. And you can't just historically you're saying yeah 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 yeah. for all intents and purposes probably in a song of ice and fire too right oh yeah i think uh i think martin's world mirrors you know our historical notions of chivalry and uh and gentlemanly behavior um i definitely do and the oaths are almost similar like you know defend the weak uh obey the king and honor your father and so forth right they're kind of similar, I think. Yeah, I think they are quite similar. Yeah, but I kind of I've heard some criticism of the ideas of chivalry that that it's mostly just like the poems from the time and the courtly romances that it's mostly fiction and that they weren't necessarily something that were really adhered to. That it was just kind of um, I guess George explores this a little bit with the chat with that the Hound has with Sansa after the tourney in A Game of Thrones where he says that a knight is a sword and you can you can tie a silk ribbon around it but it's still just a tool for killing and you can try to make it more palatable but that's what it is anyway. Yeah, I think so. I forget there's a passage in the and I, I, I was looking for it, I couldn't find it, maybe one of you recalls someone is comparing uh, the brothers Clegane and he says... Um, you know, um, Sandor is like Joffrey's dog, but the real monster is Gregor because of what he's done. But that's in my private conversation. It's seen as the other way, usually when, um, I think when Ned condemns Gregor Clegane, someone says, well, he's an anointed knight, you know, like, why would you do that? And, uh, and uh, you know, it, it shows yeah, the they, kind I of... I think it's Paisel, at least, in the show. He's an anointed knight. <laughs> And so, you know, I think um, Sandor has the physical characteristics that someone should be afraid of. You know, he should elicit all these dreams of horror and fear, but he really is not. A, a Joffrey likes him, but that's not an endorsement in it by any means <laughs> of good of goodness. But Sandor is not like the people don't move in fear of him, but people move in fear of Sir Knight uh, Gregor because, you know, at at any moment, he could smash your head in, and you know everyone's okay with that. So. I would I would disagree because I think that Sandor's feared enough in the Seven Kingdoms and has proven himself in battle and tourneys, and I think it's just Martin's writing with these great characters where Sandor embodies all these things that should make him a monster: the physical deformity, like his actions, um, but yet we still kind of like him and root for him which is kind of like one of the things I was thinking about while I was reading this. And I messaged the group that I was getting very distracted because I just thought like in 1996, this guy's writing this, what, you know, how would he write this differently post nine 11 or, you know, where the, where the zeitgeist is now where we have these anti-heroes more portrayed in the media that we like, like, you know, this is, this was before like Tony Soprano 
you know, Walter White, that kind of stuff. Um, that the that we do kind of root for these uh, <clears throat> monsters, even though that they, you know, they do monstrous things, but we still look at them and know the good side of them and kind of root for them. I mean, I think that's exactly what Tyrion is for a lot of people, right? Or at least the way that he, I mean, he, he self-identifies as a monster and, and it's sort of the same thing that we were saying before about how Jamie embraces and leans into that, that othering that happens. But Tyrion is, because he's a Lannister explicitly, but he's also, you know, congenitally deformed and, and in a way that this world considers very problematic. Um, he is, he absolutely does the the kinds of things that Cohen suggests the monster would do, like forcing that kind of category crisis where he can't be ostracized because he's a Lannister, but he also can't be, you know, the heir to Casterly Rock and he can't be, um, you know, fully recognized as as like the Lannister scion in a way that Jamie or Cersei even would be, um, but he he does embrace that and and he uses it to his advantage and um, I don't know. And I, is the key phrase of cripples, bastards, and broken things, and Tyrion is definitely among those. And like these sort of fringe characters are like people rejected by the society, and I think we naturally root for those characters yeah i i don't so, i mean i i feel like Tyrion is i don't know i i'm not a i'm not a Tyrion fan in the way that no. i thought i was the first time around i think and and i think a lot of that was influenced by the fact that i started as a show watcher rather than a than a book reader but he's just i mean i don't know he's so problematic and he's so the things that the the Westerosi think make him monstrous, I think, are the things he has going for him, <laughs> and the things that you know they they recognize as being functional in him, like his his Lannister, you know, and his political savvy and stuff. I for me are the things that I find the most um, off putting, and, and I don't know. He's just I, ugh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I always I always enjoy <laughs> reading him because basically I think that that he is like we start out seeing him as not being able to live up to the potential that he that he thinks he's himself capable of like being a true Lannister but whenever he does live up to potential and people recognize him for it that's because he does some really bad stuff because he does he acts like a Lannister <laughs> yeah, and uh, okay. uh, I think that's that I always enjoy those sort of bordering on evil characters that that are have good intentions sort of so to say but end end up being like uh, embracing more and more of of what's actually the the exact opposite of what what makes him endearing in general um that, that he's sort of a mirror to to the lannisters in general and that's what we like about him he reflects on what what they are and now he becomes one of them and that's the sort of like it gives you sort of a, a rush of adrenaline almost to see him flirt with flirt with evil, so to say. I think his relationship with Penny, which has been sort of derided by a lot of people, and and I can see where it's hugely problematic in a lot of its aspects. But I mean, I, I really think that yeah, his his relationship with Penny in his time as as Hugo Hill was really. I don't know if it was intended to, but it certainly it certainly serves the purpose of underscoring um, or, or bringing into question like what it really was that was making his 
making him so miserable in, in Westeros. You know what I mean? Because it was always, you know, he was like, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm ostracized because of how I look or because of, you know, how I was born. And, you know, it's, I, I'm never a full Lannister and I'm always kind of like ostracized and things like that. But then when he's experiencing life where he's not even a Lannister, right. And he's, he sort of sees how the other people live. I think that it's a real kind of slap in the face for him to see how privileged he actually really was, um, you know, in the scheme of things and, and how, um, how fully liminal he was in ways I think that maybe he didn't even recognize where like he really did have a foot kind of more in the, in the privileged world than um, he would even let himself admit or believe um, or anyone else would let him admit or believe. Um, So I I mean, I think that that contrast, you know, almost, almost makes him seem less monstrous than when he was like sort of in the world and, and didn't even realize it. I don't know. So I, I think that uh, we've talked about Sandor, we talked about uh, Tyrion now, and both of them are sort of like something that I don't think has been reflected necessarily that well in in that in this article. It's the uh, physical monstrosities, the ones that reflect and and sort of uh, make us uneasy, but because they are among us uh, still. I think that reflection is sort of. Maybe it's sort of like the the uh, identity thing, but I don't know. I think that this that the uh, the evolutionary thing of us having to be able to, at an instant glance, uh, recognize that that's a human uh, we're looking at, and whenever it's not, it's sort of an uncanny valley thing um, that makes it makes us uneasy. I don't know um, that I'm necessarily comfortable characterizing physical disabilities in that way. No, maybe not. But it's, I think that's well, we we just experience in the show or in the books that they are treated differently because of how they look, uh, and that's I think that's sort of like a reflection to at least maybe not like un- maybe that's the wrong way of saying it. Maybe it's just like you. You get re- realized. You, you can immediately see that they're different than you. Um, no, I do think that's like uh, the idea that you see someone who's deformed, and you sort of have a strong reaction to that. I think it's it's unfortunate, of course, but I do think there's a sort of evolutionary element to it also, and it's like, yeah, the I guess the people of Westeros are. Just kind of doing what comes naturally, while in our more um, developed society, we've kind of learned to try and try and not to judge people based on their appearance. <laughs> I mean, I do. I mean, I, I, I feel try. like we're getting into some kind of like <laughs> uncomfortable. But I mean, from a from a historical perspective, at least, I would say that there was a very strong sense. Um, in Western culture, certainly in you know Western European culture, and and maybe in others as well, that um, there was a direct correlation between physical appearance and um, uh, morality, like moral character, right? So that they didn't really distinguish between um, appearance and behavior, or appearance and and um, sanctity, or, or however you want to define it. And yeah. you know, I, I don't. You know, I certainly don't agree with that, and I don't. I would it, hope that that's not well, the case anymore. I, I but think, I think one of the um, 
things that will be more explored in the future with these books, but uh, we see it, especially with like Shireen, who's called a monster by the wildlings because she, you know, bears the marks of healed grayscale. Now we've seen Shireen act and there's no, you know, character, you know, flaw or, you know, anything in her character that we would say, oh, she's a monster, but it's because of her physical deformity that she's automatically labeled a monster. And I think that, you know, travels over to Essos when they're in the, um, fuck, the Sorrows, is that? Where all the people with grayscale. Stone men? Yeah. And they're just, you know, viewed as monsters that need to be kept away from normal people and, you know, independent of, you know, how they really are. It's just their disease and their deformity that's causing them that. I mean, I, I would suggest that that brings up a really interesting component of monstrosity that I don't feel like Cohen's criteria really address all that directly. And that would be the the aspect of contagion, that monstrosity can be catching and that grayscale is, is kind of ensuring deformity from grayscale is maybe the best example of that on a very practical level where um, Val doesn't believe that she's done with grayscale. Like it's not, you can't be marked by it and then be completely free of it. And um, the same with the stone men, right? That, that, um, you know, if they touch you, you become one of them. Um, and it, it hasn't occurred to me reading Cohen's article that that's not something that he, he really gets into as much as some of the other things. But I think that that's such an important part of, of the monster is that, you know, we fear um, contact with it will, will infect us or, or kind of um, not because we're mimicking its behavior, but because there's literally like a miasma to it. Like there's, there's a, there's a polluting aspect. I mean, I think he talks about it in uh, thesis three with the anti-Semitism and poisoning of wells and stuff like that. Um, the way that they were portrayed, especially during the uh, medieval ages. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't think he, I don't think it, the paradigm is that they bring the, that they necessarily bring the sickness mm-hmm. to the body. It's more of an agency that, he, or he's portraying them them as having agency and willfully spreading the disease, I guess. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But whereas I'm thinking of like, if a zombie bites you, you turn into a zombie or if a werewolf bites you, you turn right. into a werewolf, right? That there's like an actual physical component to it, which I think is what, I think is what the, well, and, and I mean, that's something that's kind of weird to think about, but it's something that they're a little bit afraid of has happened to John with the time that he spent among the wildlings, right? Where like, he's a wildling now because he, he caught wildlingism, <laughs> right? Right, and I think um, to bring it back to the Dornish, wasn't that what Daron was facing because he surrounded himself with Dornish uh, courtiers and stuff like that? They they feared that he was, that Dorn had you know, grown too influential that he was going to become more like that or turn the Southern Kingdoms more like Dorne. Yeah, Yeah, and that that is sort of like a cultural conservatism in that sense, at least. And I think this is very much about preservation of what you have and anything that sort of reminds you that that your little community is unsafe uh, or not as safe as you want it to be, that makes you uneasy. Um, and, and I think, yeah, uh, contagion, also those sorts of things. A lot of the, uh, the physical things that you see or when people die around you, that makes you uh, automatically more uh, conservative. You see this in history, at least, that uh, after threats to your society, you become the society as a whole becomes more conservative. So yeah, and conservatism has also been linked to disgust sensibility in general, and I suppose like people who are more more sensitive to being disgusted 
they would be more fearful of those contaminants coming into their space or whatever, I suppose. Another interesting example is sort of speaking of the wildlings, but um, we haven't really talked about the others, which I think is, is a really, um, there could be a really important component of this discussion, but there are also contagious, right? I mean, like you, if you come into contact with the others, you become a white walker, you become a white, um, so that it's, you know, it's spreading and that's part of that pandemic quality, you know, not to, not to get too, <laughs> not to get too topical, but that too pandemic real. quality to the others is, is part of what makes them so dangerous is that they're recruiting as well as, um, as well as advancing. Quite that, a that also, worn a mask. That also, <laughs> remi- that also reminds me actually that if, about of, of our uh, vampire chat that that sometimes um, this this mythos or it's actually not a mythos because it's actually a thing in that world, but it's about like um, it sort of explores the whole idea of having to go through a ritual to make the dead stay dead, so to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, impaling them or whatever it is, making them, burying them in a consecrated grave, whatever that those rituals are to make them stay where they are, that that's sort of a reflection of what a, maybe what a zombie or a vampire is, and a, or a white or revenant as we called them before. And in this situation, it's li- it's a it's a literal personification of of those fears that the White Walkers are at least that 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 if you don't bury them in the ice cells they will come after you <laughs> yeah or um, yeah or even like there i think it's in the first book where there's like some kind of like lizard brain response when they find the bodies beyond the wall and you know the brothers say you know burn them mm-hmm. and you know the captain says no bring them back you know we're gonna figure out what killed them or whatever um but yeah, they they somehow instinctually know that to prevent this from spreading, they need to burn the bodies. Yeah, yeah, and and it's it's like uh, like way back you would have you would have the idea that you needed to burn them or bury them or else they might carry to some disease or poison the well or whatever, and that that became into a a myth in itself, a folkloric tale in itself. So I think that's very interesting that. Uh, <clears throat> That George just says, well, this is real, and this is actually how, basically, how it is that you do. If you don't bury it or uh, burn it, then it's kind of gonna come after you. I don't know how much of George's uh, writing of the others was intentional, but it's. Uh, I think Matt, you're the one who asked the question as to whether or not George would have written the the books the way he did post 9/11. I saw an interview with George where he talks about Beauty and the Beast, which he wrote for, and how he was making fun of the fact that the Beast would go out and like kill 12 people, but as long as he reads poetry, everyone's okay with it. Uh, I think that that kind of contrast, I, it sounded like he was mocking that you know, norm where people could do horrible things, but as long as we like them, it's okay. Um, I wonder how much of that is reflected in these conflicted characters that we are now examining as whether they be perceived as monsters or not. But uh, when you mentioned that, I I got thinking about Tyrion. Tyrion, I think, and I I won't linger here, I promise, but Tyrion, I think, is despised more than he is, you know, hated. He is seen as less than other, or less than the people around him. And so I think his alienation is more a matter of contempt than it is of, 
you know, trying to vilify him. But I am curious as to why in the books they keep calling him Lord Tywin's doom. Like his presence was supposed to be the mm-hmm. end. Is it just like a like a scornful thing, or does was there some kind of cultural um, connotation with having a dwarf as a kid? I mean, I, I think. Well, I mean, monsters were in in the Middle Ages. They were considered from monstrum, monstrum, right? Where it's like a sign or a portent. Um, so, I mean, I think it would have been arguably or or at least in some medieval perceptions a sense of a reflection of tywin's um moral shortcomings or moral failings to have oh, a, a right. plus, plus took his wife so well right that's true humbled yeah. this you know great lord and brought him low okay i see also I, sorry I, I meant uh, cohen wrote this in 1996 even though george also wrote a game of thrones in 1996 i was referring to uh, the essay Oh, I see. Okay, I thought you were talking about the books. Oh, I did too, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, no. <laughs> no worries. Uh, sorry, you were talking about the others, or did you have a point, uh, Sarah, I interrupted you, sorry. No, no, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say the others. Uh, question for you guys. In the books, I noticed that the Northerners talk about the others more than people in the South. And, like, in their phrases, like, the others take you, or... Um, the stories that parents tell their kids, like, if you don't behave, the others will take you. Um, which, funny enough, in the north-north, the wildlings say, if you don't behave, the rangers, the crows will get you. So that's uh, <laughs> that's interesting there. But um, I can never recall anyone in the south or any stories in the south um, using the others or even the wildlings as a cultural other to, like, scare their kids or speak of. Uh, you know, morality in terms of, you know, um, good and bad. Um, I don't recall any of that. Yeah, is there a boogeyman in the South? I mean, I, I think that's what the wildlings... I guess we don't see a lot of parents in the South. Like, I think the Ironborn are kind of... the snobs yeah, in the South. Uh, yeah, maybe. They're, they're, they're otherized as krakens and, and, like, sea people. You know, the black blood thing... Um, in the world of ice and fire, that makes me think of it. Mm-hmm. Whatever the yeah. house snarks and grumpkins are, I don't, <laughs> don't really get into that at all. Yeah, being I uh, think of other things though that would be like monstrous. I guess associ are sometimes viewed as that. We kind of talked about with that with the with the bloody mummers. I think maybe Maggie the Frog or the Ghost of High Heart are sort of like these creatures oh. that live in the mm. periphery of society or uh, they are people not creatures but they like they are I suppose Maggie the Frog is like an old hag and like the kind of wicked witch idea there and the at least Cersei's descriptions of Maggie the Frog are very monstrous well yeah they call her woods witch um, you know to like alienate her but they still go to her for all their remedies and stuff and predictions which is which is funny, but um, yeah, I, I just never came across as many in the South um, stories of the other. In fact, I get the feeling that people in the South don't believe the others exist, um, you know. And and I don't know if the others are used interchangeably with White Walkers. Like, are the others the zombies, or are they the actual, like, White Walkers who turn people into zombies? I think and the others are the like the White Walkers or the kind of like the um, intelligent kind of fairy-like people. 
ice demons and the whites are the zombies that are their servants that they raised from the dead. I see. Okay. I think that makes... Ooh, so cold hands would be another good sort of Cohen-esque monster, I think, where, you know, he's not alive and not dead and not a white walker, but he's not a white. Um, it, you know, what the hell is he? <laughs> like, um, I don't know. But, if we're, but we're not scared of him, right? We're happy when he shows up and he's, and he's yeah. helpful and he's... Um, so, I mean, I think it's... it's maybe a revenant? Is he like is he Blood Raven? Is that a theory that I've seen floated? Like the Blood Raven is just animating of a revenant? Oh, I'm not sure, but like Blood Raven himself is something beyond you know what is human, whether mm-hmm. it's magical or something else. Blood Raven. I actually read the Mystery Night comic book yesterday, and I got to thinking about Blood Raven. That even while he was alive as just a normal human being, he was also this kind of monster that we would consider, or the Westerosi would consider Tyrion and Sandor to be, perhaps. That he was uh, an albino and a sorcerer and a bastard and and uh, reviled because of that. Yeah. But also incredibly powerful largely because of all the thing, right? You know, the thousand mm-hmm. eyes and one that he, he leaned into it and, and used it for advancement. And, well, and yeah, they also, they also said he was a black sorcerer too, or practiced black magic. Which, as it turns out, <laughs> was which yeah, he probably did. not wrong, yeah. yeah. Well, so, so, there, so there is like a, a, a ongoing theme that, uh, that if you get ostracized or marginalized because of how you look or how, how, what, capabilities you might have or how different you are in general uh you you if you you can get success by sort of leaning into it but it also at the end sort of spells your doom uh that idea that you're different because you can be discarded as 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 an enemy so to say when you when people don't need you anymore you develop superpowers when you get ostracized is that the uh is that the way (laughs) that's how it works yeah Someone banish me quick, please. Yeah, and 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 uh, and Blood Raven literally got his uh, Fortress of Solitude uh, uh, at the end. So yeah, uh, <laughs> like Blood Raven is a is a fascinating character here because as, as you're suggesting, like he was he was um, you know sort of physically and and behaviorally and even sexually other right, like that he had this kind of relationship with the you know this, but um, he. Like now he's somewhere even in between plant and human. <laughs> like yeah. he's literally like a tree growing into him, and More. it's just like I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he's he's I think one of the most extreme um, uh, metamorphoses that we that we see or, or kind of don't see because we we sort of, we see the final product, but um, you know we get hints of him and stuff in Duncan Egg and and this idea that yeah he's gone from like a perfectly normal quote unquote human person to this what the hell you know ancient half tree astral projecting mind sorcerer like I don't know I don't even know how he's a swamp thing but in the north I think keep describing him he gets better but that's also interesting. He he casts away his the last vestiges of of humanity to 
to become or what what society expects of him to become what he's truly meant to be that's uh i mean that that's interesting to think yeah, about, about that that's a good narrative or, the, or nature yeah i think we still you, need that i mean i think we still need a lot more information we need wins <laughs> we <laughs> do <laughs> need wins <laughs> to be able to i mean know, i mean perfect judgment I mean, do we need wins? <laughs> I will come over there. Peter needs wins badly. My like, Bloodhaven makes me so uncomfortable in terms of all of these categories, and I just—he's weird to me because in the in the books he feels so almost like an afterthought. Like he's kind of he's there, and like Bran meets him, but he's never the thing that springs to my mind, at least when I'm thinking about A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, but between, you know, just his existence and, and his longevity um, and his connections to Crow's Eye and I don't know, I just, I, or his, his ostensible connections to Crow's Eye, I guess nobody's really verified that, but. Um, well, he's like the, uh, you know, like the Godfather cover. He's the one holding the marionette above the letters, you know, out of sight, like puppet master, right? I hope not. I really hope not. Like, I don't want to get into, you know, tinfoil, but I'm going to be mad if. He's behind everything. Right? Like, that's he just is. so. Well, there's a couple of, th- we don't need to go into them, but I'm fairly sure he's behind a couple of things. Ugh. Oh, for sure. But, I'm um, about another um, example of this, how people treat skin changers. Um, we get a look into, like, the culture around it with Veramir, especially in his, like, uh, prologue and how he's like so separate from the structure but also like he has these like tribes that pay him tribute it's you know feels and he talks about like some village hero will come by every once in a while to save a sister or a mother and you know he kills them and he goes about his you know monstrous activities he actually thought about walking and Bran's wolf dreams as well um, when reading this, especially in Thesis 6, Fear of the Monster is really a kind of desire where Cohen says that through the body of the monster, fantasies of aggression, domination, and inversion are allowed safer expression in a clearly delimited and permanently liminal space. Escapist delight gives way to horror only when the monster, monster threatens to overstep these boundaries to destroy or deconstruct the thin walls of category and culture. So with Bran, definitely he kind of uh, enjoys that sort of the bodily uh, sensations that he can no longer experience in his human form and delights in like uh, being a predator and killing and eating other things as a wolf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a good quote for the warging. Um, and we see we see the the sort of end result of that or the the final you know descent of that when Vermeer tries to warg a human right and that I mean that really does break down the the overly thin boundaries between <laughs> culture or culture don't you think it's interesting that like um his mentor or whatever there's a group of wargs that had set these own rules to make sure that they're not viewed as monsters because they know what can happen if they, you know, go out of these bounds and become more abominations. Um, I think 
that's interesting that they've had to set up their own society so they are viewed as monsters where Vermeer, you know, disregards this and then Bran just doesn't know the rules, right? So what he does could be considered monstrous as well. Well, also that, like, it's considered monstrous, but in the end, I think Vermeer was always a person who was a monster. He wanted to push that boundary, you know? Mm-hmm, yeah. He, he does some odd okay. things as a warg compared to others, at least in my opinion. Fantasies of aggression and domination. Well, okay, you were talking about him walking into the female wolf and being mounted, I suppose. Exactly. I think, uh, you know, the community definitely have a fear of people who have these other abilities like warging and such. But, you know, having the gift from birth doesn't make them a monster. In fact, um... Faramir's father, when he's when he knows he has the gift, doesn't kill him. He takes him and says, "You have to be with your own kind," and he gives him over. Um, and so there's no fear. Uh, or I guess when people start using their gifts for, you know, things like when uh, Faramir would send his wolf to get a girl because he wanted to sleep with her, and and that you know obviously is not cool for the for the village. That's when a local hero will go and try and kill, you know, because harm has been done to them. And so there's the monster who is inflicting harm, not because of the way he looks or what he is, but because of what he's done to us now. And we should, you know, we should go and kill him or at least try. Oh, that's very interesting. So the the problem is not that he's other, it's when that other encroaches on the boundaries of... That's really interesting. So you can be... I, I guess that's true for a lot of, you know, I mean, like, as long as... Daenerys stays in the Dothraki Sea, like nobody really cares oh, <laughs> when yeah. she comes to the free cities. Like when you guys mentioned Davos, I started thinking about that. Like, why would Davos be so? Why would his presence be so upsetting to these other lords? And it's because he is now his presence usurps their authority or influence with Stannis, and so all of a sudden, you know, they hate him. He saved them in the siege, most of them, right? But um, you know, they hate him for the fact that he he's He's taking away their power. And with Tyrion, I wonder if, well, I don't know if that's the same thing, but um, I think the reason why society would hate others, I I thought of bastards. Bastards as the ultimate other, you know, where they say blood will tell, and a bastard is born of treachery and just demonization of anyone who happens to be born on the other side of the the sheets. And I think it's, it's more of when that bastard is a threat um, or when they expose a person's non-chaste behavior, that's when the demonization begins. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think, you know, if Robert has bastards all over the place, right, and as long as they stay in their lane, nobody seems to care. Well, nobody exactly. cares. Exactly. Um, but yeah, like if Gendry had showed up at the palace or at the castle and been like, hey, dad, you know, then probably all hell would have broken loose. Right? Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting what you said about the bastard sort of serving as a sign of the that they say that they're born out of lust and lies and sort of born sort of a, as a sign of their infidelity. As Sarah said earlier, that a monster monstrum is kind of like a portent or a sign, and it's kind of like it demonstrates their infidelity to the world. Yeah, yeah, they, they're they're um, they're 
portion of of the idea that their morality is no longer safe like or that they they are not safe in 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 uh, society that could be by morality or it could be like physically unsafe in if it's like the the white walkers or a miasma or some like grayscale i think that's i think that is the core of of a uh, of it that there are importance of you not being safe anymore in what you value being, I, maybe your life i think that kind of morality too has a very pragmatic um component in a in a feudal patriarchal society right because one of the reasons that bastards in particular are so threatening and and so much less threatening to small folk right like nobody gives a shit if like the innkeeper has but it's a it's a threat in the same way that we were saying davos was or in a comparable way that you know, blood is blood. And, you know, if you're born to a noble house, you're supposed to be noble and, and that's, but the bastard introduces this possibility that, you know, you can, you can create something or something exists that is simultaneously a part of that system and also not a legitimate part of it. Right. So they're there and they demonstrate that this blood can be passed on in ways that don't support the system or that actually kind of deconstruct it a little bit and reveal that it's, um, its basic premises are, are are flawed, you know, if not just fragile. Um, yeah, but the innkeeper's yeah, wife cares. Yeah, yeah, but, <laughs> but I think, but I think that's that's in general true that uh, that the monster's potentness is is basically derived from the actual danger it poses to the people that it's uh, you know meant to scare. Uh, so if it if it's like a story about miasma or the wolf in the woods, then it's it's meant to scare specific people that that it actually whatever it warns about is that's an actual danger for them in somehow in some way. I think that's one of the interesting parts of Danny's early character arc is that she goes from being scared of everything to to being able to scare. Um, and she does that by uh, incorporating the Dothraki influence and and kind of embracing uh, what, on one hand, I guess you argue could be her her heritage, her Targaryen heritage with the eggs, but also this um, very radical otherness in you know becoming the mother of dragons and the the you know the unburnt and all of these things that exist outside the parameters of um, you know normal humanity. So if if Danny is is it is she like scary? Does she become become a monster for other people uh, then when she starts re- like taking p- things in from the Dothraki nation and whatever, or does she become scary? Well, certainly, when she, the series. Yeah, maybe, I think that's... maybe. But but is that because she she poses a threat to him? And that I think we we have to think about. For Viserys, yes. I think Viserys views it as sort of a contamination of her sister and by extension himself by being taking on the savages wearing their their costumes and hairstyles. But, but I think that's true. And I think as soon as he's, you know, uh, made to walk behind the cart, like that, that he becomes, he realizes that her incorporation of this otherness has become a kind of power for her that he can't rival or emulate. Yeah. I think he's indoctrinated with the um, Targaryen exceptionalism that the seven kingdoms allowed and that he grew up with that Daenerys never really had except through him. 
Uh, she know she never saw you know their castle in Westeros or anything like that. That it she didn't have that kind of anchor to her actual. Um, yeah, they call it Targaryen exceptionalism because isn't that the actual doctrine? Yeah, because that's what allowed them to marry uh, brother to sister and inner family. Mm. They actually, yeah, I think this the church did it right. Well, yeah, yeah the um, the they are the blood of the dragon, and so the rules of normal people don't apply to them. Um, yeah, I think yeah. it's it's, it's, it's that way. But uh, that that. That also, but but then again, so is that his? Does he see Daenerys as a monster? Necessarily, does he monsterize her? You mean Viserys? Yeah, does the Viserys make uh, or think of Daenerys mm-hmm. as a monster? I don't oh, think, I think so. He he calls her like a horse lord's whore or something like that, and kind of okay. definitely tries to betray her as tainted and kind of like other in that way, I guess. But maybe not. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I, thought, I mean, it's a component of something that Cohen brings up, right, where he talks about miscegenation and the fear of, um, you know, racial mixture, cultural mixture, especially in marriage, where um, there, it becomes this this kind of category rupture. Yeah, I was going to say, I think uh, he also thinks that she's a monster because she also killed her mother, right, in childbirth. Oh, that's right. That is true. Hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah. He's got his one contribution in. Yeah. Um, Wally's had several contributions. Cause, uh, <laughs> Thank you, Peter. High fives all <laughs> But yeah, I think Oberyn also talks about um, Tyrion's birth and that whole situation. And I think around that event, Cersei often calls Tyrion a monster also. By, like, I think tearing her mother apart or something like that. Yeah. That's yes, the very reason for hating him. Yeah. So they are a bad omen, all those. <laughs> the babies who kill their mothers in childbirth, yeah. I'd say so. <laughs> Especially for the mother. Yeah. Um, a a bit of bad news. Yeah. yeah. So, well, think, kind so, of a bummer to the day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think the fact that George tells the story from Daenerys' point of view um, says that he's the important person. If we think of this from Viserys, he is on the quest to get his throne back. I doubt Viser- uh, Daenerys even features in his life story other than you know, his right, his property, and the fact that he was supposed to marry her. and He trades her off easily just because he wants to get the Horse Lord's uh, army to get his kingdom back. So his... His focus is on the throne that was stolen from him by all the laws of men, you know. Uh, but Daenerys is the only one that can wake the dragon eggs. And because she has some implicit power in her, that even Rhaegar and the other Targaryens beforehand could not get access to, she somehow gets it. Um, whether it was meant to be or because she happened upon Mary Mouse I don't know. But um, I think Daenerys is exceptional. And so when the time comes for her return, I wonder if that will become, you know, the rallying cry that, you know, no, she's a demon. Everyone should hate her because only she could do all these monstrous things and wake dragons and she's a bad omen and all that, you know. But um, Targaryens themselves, I think because they had power in their time, 
they were the norm, or not the norm, sorry, they were accepted, even though they were exceptional, but um, Daenerys seems to be the only one left from that era, era perhaps, because she can wake dragons, and she has some power, I think, um, in the books, not the show, but in the books she has some, some like, power, right? Um, I'm thinking that she does, so that might serve to... You mean like magical power, like yeah, separate like from magic. her political power? Yeah, like actual magic. Like I know she. Uh, there's this. Uh, I wasn't sure if she could burn in the books because she walks into the fire and loses like her hair and stuff. Um, and I think George once said that she can't. Like she's not immune to fire, but I do think she has some kind of magic ability, something that separates her from everyone else. Um, and I think that will be called into question, just like they did with the Starks, to say that they're demons because they can walk into, you know, animals. I think in her case, disability, whatever it is, when it's when it's manifested, will become, you know, something to set her apart and maybe vilify her in front of, mm. or in the in in Westeros before her return. Yeah, I know that George has said that the her being immune to fire in that event where the dragons hatched that that was a one-time event and sort of a I don't think I'm not sure if George uses the word miracle but that it was kind of a, a one-time event but uh, in the show I think there's multiple events where Daenerys is shown mm-hmm. to be resistant or immune to fire doesn't she also doesn't she lose her hair again in Dazdex Pit or am I misremembering yeah 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 that's what I was saying too that she takes out a furnace blast and like when I think our last chapter, she even mentions her hair is finally growing back. Mm-hmm. Uh, does she blister after that? Like, does she have physical harm besides her hair? I think she does, right? I feel like, I, okay. yeah, I feel like I'm remembering that she does, like, either from contact with Drogon or or mm. from the actual fire. I can't remember, though. Like, it's been... Yeah. No, if you can blister, you can burn, I think. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so that in general, then all Targaryens uh, and the dragons and the fireworms um, and Valerian blades, and also they sort of all connected in a way, right? Or at least dragons and and Targaryens and Valerian blades, I would think, because they're all sort of connect. You know, we we know they they say they're connect the dragon blood, but but both like Valerian blades are like special they can't really be reinforced for some reason unless you know specific magic and and dragons sort of seems to be connected also to sort of sort of sort of a blood con- blood connection right uh so i'm yeah. thinking that the, yeah i believe uh, they hatched through the blood sacrifice of mirimastur yeah exactly those um, dragons I'm, I'm, targaryens and Valyrian blades is um what is that yeah, but it, I'm I'm thinking that the whole there's a whole mythos about the the blood sacrifice this uh, as, as as well with, as with the prince that was promised and, mm-hmm. and that right. idea uh, yeah. that they have to sort of uh, cast off their morality their their human thing to become uh, what they're supposed to be harder and and superhuman almost right. Yeah, so metaphorically, they have to cut out their own heart by killing their spouse or something like that. Exactly. I think, I think the Targaryens are the, you know, genetically or, or sort of species-wise, are the most monstrous 
yeah. things that we've seen. Like, I, I mean, everybody else is sort of behaviorally aberrant or, or maybe sort of physically aberrant in a more limited way. But, um, but the Targaryens, I mean, there, there is genuinely like a, a genetic kind of monstrosity to them that I, yeah. I think we've only had hints of at this point. And I don't really think that there's anybody else with the, I don't know, I was going to say with the possible exception of Jon Snow, but I don't even think that's. Well, um, I mean, there are the, like in the north, the skin changes, but that's not as pronounced as with the Targaryens, I suppose, like, uh, especially with the wildlings, where it seems to be more prevalent, the, the walking gene or whatever, or the blood that allows you to change your skin. But yeah, the Targaryen blood does manifest in visions quite often, dreams yeah. and visions and stuff like that. What I'm thinking too about Danny's dream where she actually grows the wings herself, which strikes me as more than metaphorical. Um, I, maybe that's, you know, but especially compared to all those Stark kids and their wolf dreams, like they never turn into wolves. Like it, they're just inside the wolf and it, it just feels like a different kind of relationship to me. Um, and um, they say that uh, Danny's baby, the stillborn one from book one that oh, had yeah. scales and little stubby yeah. wings or something like that. That's well. right. And it happened with the other, um, with some of the other Targaryens too, right? Some yeah. Of the Targaryens yeah so I, baby and, maybe yeah. in the ancient past of Valyria, they infused their blood with dragon blood and that gave them dominion over the dragons. I think that that's a pretty easy theory to make, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would, I would expand on that guys, because I would think that, um, as they said, it, I think it was in the world of ice and fire. They basically said that at some point there wasn't any dragons. And then a sudden, all of a sudden, dragons mm-hmm. were discovered, and Valeria blossomed up, and they were the only one who could control dragons. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, and also trying to use like sort of like a ling- lingual idea as we used last time, Dracul being <laughs> both dragon and demon. Oh. I, I think, I think maybe uh, as as um, I think was it um, is it various? Yeah, various talking about how he lost his his manhood, right? Uh, he uh, he talked about this. There is something dark beyond the veil, mm-hmm. um, and and maybe maybe just maybe dragons and uh, I'm taking the tinfoil on right now. Mm-hmm. Dragons and uh, and Valerians are like the product of some sort of pact for power. Fire, oh, I, flesh. I think they're pretty clearly a genetic engineering project. Like I don't yeah. know. Like that's it's my head cannon if it's nothing else. Okay. But I really do think that like. They're a blood magic kind of. Genes. Oh boy, we're going full Preston Jacobs. I love it. Yeah, I I mean, this is the song of ice and fire, and yeah, the others are sort of ice made flesh. So as opposed to dragons, could be Patrick. You were talking about the voice that that um, Varys heard when his manhood was sacrificed. That like maybe Rolor or something like that could be like a fire spirit or fire demon beyond the veil that they have kind of been able to manifest in the physical world through the dragons mm. yeah and, then, and you also have like the two main you know otherworldly but semi-human demi-human uh, sort of fantasy tropes in in that you have the undead the whites the the revenants on one side uh, and then you have the demons on the other side both are like 
reflections of ourselves and 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 those those things we do so i think that in that case we we do have like a, a very tangible monster race <laughs> in the yeah. in the targaryen yeah i completely agree and i think it's really fascinating that you know, for, for all of our discussion about, um, you know, physical manifestations and things like that, and also Cohen's theory that the monster is always alluring in some way, um, that the Targaryens are just ravishingly beautiful as a, as a people. Mm. Well, and yeah, the uh, Night's Queen was also very hot. <laughs> or you cold, mean cold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that Valeria, the island of monsters, yeah? I think that's where all the uh, crazy came from. You know, you make a good point. And I, I started to think back. Uh, I read the um, the World of Ice and Fire. And there's, well, I hope I'm not spoiling. Spoiler alert, I guess. But um, there's this passage where one of Jairus' kids gets taken away. Maybe not kids. Maybe his sister's kid gets taken away by, um, by the Dread. Um, and goes to Valeria and comes back with wounds to say that, you know, there are really horrible things in Valeria. And, uh, oh, did well, she have, like, arms coming out of her or something? Yeah, she was, like, yeah. she was, like infected. Area. Well, yeah. yeah. But yeah. She was being, Valeria. like, she had, like, fireworms inside of her. Inside her, yeah. Yeah, yeah but then one of Valeria the getting darkest injured. things I think George has ever written. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite disturbing. But um, I, I do think that there's something living. Well, I think the story about Valeria is that they dug too deep. They search, their search for power consumed them, and so they, you know, were doomed. And that's what you just said about a power pact between some kind of evil and the Valerians. Maybe that is the that is the origin of the fire, you know, aspect of our story. I'm really excited for um, Marwin to to meet up with Daenerys because I feel like I mean he studied, you know, in these in these kind of very esoteric matters and he's connected with Mary Mazdor who may or may not have been the one to activate Danny's latent potential in the first place and um yeah I, I mean I feel like if we're gonna ever find out more about um about that aspect of it that it will be through their relationship or through his dealings with her but that may just be empty hope on my part <laughs> yeah that may be a simple dream of spring I know but yeah, I would definitely want to hang out with Marvin and pick his brain about the lore of the world. I know. He could tell us so much, uh, Marvin. Or would he be truthful? I see no reason for him to lie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think you're putting too much onto him that we don't even know. I think he's... I know. You see, know, I wonder... <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, like, it, I always feel like Marwin's going to be like uh, Scatman Crothers in The Shining. He's just going to show up and be killed immediately. Oh, no. <laughs> you, you mean Boba Fett? What's that? Oh, it does. Like a Boba Fett? It, sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, that is something that George would do. It would be hilarious if one of the dragons just, like, crunched him. You know what I mean? <laughs> It's like I'm here with all your, you know, like, oh. <laughs> I will tell you all the secrets of. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the uh, the Maester's conspiracy. He's the one going to reveal that to us somehow, uh, because he seems to know what's going on there, and uh, I don't see anyone else trying to expose that to anyone. So, I like with Pete and Sam or with 
Sam's in a position. Well, yeah, but Sam does not suspect, right? Like, Sam might... I don't know who would reveal it to, to Sam, but Marin seems to know, have some knowledge that the Maesters are actively trying to, you know, cancel the Targaryens from existence. Mm-hmm. So that's why, um, you know, he wants to do something about that, I think. So based on... Um Cohen's criteria. Can is there anyone in A Song of Ice and Fire who's just normal? <laughs> is there anyone in A Song of Ice and Fire who's, who couldn't be considered a monster in in some or all of these respects? Do we think? Like, is there anyone who's just like hanging out, living their life? Oh, I hate to say this, but probably cat. Yeah, maybe that's why I hate her so much. Oh, I don't. But I mean, they're you know, cat oh, I do. There's real Stoneheart then. Oh, yeah, before Stoneheart, well, yeah. but Cancel yeah, I guess oh, yeah. really <laughs> instead of white bread. I, I get that, but like, she's Stalking. become the monster essentially. Yeah. Right. I think she she needed to be that foil. So when Stoneheart is shown that it is the complete opposite. So maybe she's the suggestion that the the monstrosity of this world is inescapable. Like that there is no there is no normal. There is no. Just there are no happy endings. Yeah, maybe Ned. Or, or, or maybe like true agency uh, springs out of of monstrosity. Like, maybe. yeah. So she doesn't she doesn't become like a, a portion of her own de- her own destiny or others' destiny before she becomes like a like a shade or of herself. That is really interesting because Cat one of her one of her narrative through lines is the restrictions of duty, right? And like obligation and what's expected of women or what's expected of mothers or what's expected of, um, you know, nobility or a good daughter or, you know, I mean, she has all of these kind of conflicting, um, conflicting expectations, sort of similar to what Jamie says about swearing and swearing and swearing oaths. Um, but yeah, that, that's re- that is really interesting that like this world is structured in such a way that if you exist within the system, um, except for, for those characters who push its peripheries like Ramsey or somebody that, you know, you, you do sacrifice some of your agency just to, just to exist within the boundaries of what's expected or what's, um, what's prescribed. And along oh, those talking about Westeros now or some other world? Oh, Westeros. <laughs> <laughs> just like along those lines, you could argue that like, that was also the downfall of Jon Snow is that he did not go to his monstrous side enough and that led to his downfall like he could have died the wildlings or you know attacked them again or just completely destroyed them but instead he shows them mercy and that ends up being his downfall i would also argue that i would also argue that that all the characters we follow have some certain amount of agency most of them and those who don't like cat like cat they die and 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 acquire agency so to say so that we we follow the monsters that's the story we enjoy watching we don't want want we don't want to watch the normies is is Arya and Sansa then changing identities the the transformation to have agency yeah yeah I think Arya certainly is is embracing this liminality or this kind of non non non-being or this non-categorization or where like she's not she, you know, she wasn't she's no, for a while. She wasn't noble. She's not, you know. Yeah. yeah. There's, 
there's also a monstrosity in anonymity like in we see mm-hmm. real life like uh uniforms and stuff like that 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 it makes you more capable of doing more monstrous things themselves but also people tend to be afraid of a, of a large group like showing the same features that are different so to say so the the anonymity is also a monstrous side i think and both uh, sansa yeah. and and aria portrays those uh, ideas oh, that's- that's really interesting, though, because I would say that there are two kinds of anonymity, right? There's anonymity on an individual level, which I would argue is what Arya is cultivating, where she's rejecting or, or maybe not rejecting who she is and and becoming a person who literally switches faces in order to travel undetected. Um, whereas Sansa, I think, is is sort of wrapping herself in the anonymity of conformity um, first in King's Landing just to keep herself safe and then... Um, and then, you know, potentially moving forward in in a more kind of active way, but that she's, you know, she's she's cloaking herself in the the conformity of, you know, dutiful um, daughter, fiance, or, or you know, good noble girl, or however you, you know, however she's characterizing herself. But um, but yeah, that there's that she's she can kind of people don't see her coming i guess for like almost the yeah. opposite way that um that they don't see Arya coming or that they won't see Arya coming yeah i would say, i would say that i think that this actually to the same thing basically that it's just that sansa closed herself in in social anonymity instead like instead of having to be able to actually change her face in the physical part of your monstrousness is that she becomes an uh, uh, anonymous uh, by by with her looks, while Sansa uh, at the end starts to learn how to acquire to to say exactly what what uh, people want mm-hmm. and yeah. and become socially an, uh, anonymous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting because they, you know we think about monsters in terms of difference, but but there there is also we're starting to see maybe a power in conformity, but but sort of faux conformity, right? That um, it's a it's an assumed or a, um, an enacted conformity rather than true. Um. Yeah, yeah. No, no one would be afraid of, of Sansa or Arya if they didn't recognize that, that 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 was what they were doing. No one would be afraid of them. But they, as soon as someone would recognize what they were doing, how they were acting, they would start fearing them or at least uh, taking them seriously. Uh, uh, so I think that 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 the 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 wolf in sheep's clothing is definitely a, an, another sort of narrative that is about the monster that they can be anywhere <laughs> and among us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. interesting about the anonymity. Like even the stranger in the faith of the seven is depicted as someone who's hooded and cloaked that you can't see their face and they're literally the stranger and the other in that sense and i think with a lot of this stuff we've been talking about the sort of anxiety around monsters comes from the fact that you can't really pin them down that they're sort of this ever-shifting thing that you can't really recognize and maybe you only recognize a part of them but then there's something that you can't quite understand and then you that that makes you uneasy like maybe they're hybrids between life and death like the undead or between human and animal like the walks or any of those kinds of things well yeah always escapes i do think so 
I think more Arya than Sansa. I don't know that Sansa will deviate from what's expected from her um, as a member of Westerosi society. Um, but I do think what Arya is doing, you know, changing faces and being an assassin is definitely out there. Um, but but I don't know that people will find that out. It's like a stranger. You don't get to know him until you're dead. And then, you know, it's too late. And so I think with Arya, more than anything else, she was on the way to some form of alienation with not being a proper lady and not wanting to wear a dress. Um, but I think when... When Joffrey happened to her father, she became, you know, more disposed to just being the outsider and being out there. I think it's interesting too that one of the one of the main conduits before the Faceless Men to that kind of um, alterity or, or that power and alterity was through um, John, and then sort of by extension through uh, the the black brothers, right. This sense that, um, the crows or the, the night's watch are also these, these kind of liminal guards and, and literal border guards in the way that, um, that Cohen describes. So they're, they're guarding the threshold of possibility, partly because you don't want to become them and partly because you don't want to face them. Um, but they're, but they're operating in that same way. And that was sort of her first taste of that possibility was John going to join the night's watch after he gave her needle and then, um, her time traveling with Yorin, that, um, you know, sort of let her see that, that being, again, kind of a social uh, free radical or, or a nonconformist, um, the way that Yorin was kind of just like, I'm a black brother, get the fuck out of my way, right? Like, that um, there, is a, there is a kind of power in not belonging um, or, or not, um, not following along. That is really so, interesting. Yes. Yes, it, it is, most certainly. I, you know, I never thought of Arya much until I heard people in this, this podcast talk about her transformation from little girl to, like, hardened killer. And then rereading the books, I notice, or George at least, gives us a peek at her own consciousness while turning. So, like, there are moments where before she does something or she meets someone who would have known her in her former life, let's say, and she worries how they would see her if they know she's killed someone or if her mother or brother would want her back, if they'd known what she'd done and how, you know, all of a sudden she's excluded from the family she's been trying to get back to. And it's only mm-hmm. with John that she doesn't feel that way. I mean, she, she says it when she's trying to book passage back, um, passage to the north. She thinks for a moment, will John, will he care? He won't care is what she finally says. But um, I think her transformation now, I appreciate it more than, when I first read the books um, the first time, that she really is an outsider and, you know, capable of these things that people would might shrink away from. But I think the fact that she is a girl, unfortunately, makes it more pronounced. Like, they encourage boys to kill early, which is, you know, crazy. Um, they squire at 12 or whatever it is. Um, and uh, But the expectations are different for Arya because she is a girl. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting twist on the kind of thing that um, Cersei talks to Sansa about when she's drunk at the um, at the Battle of Blackwater, party, where she says, yeah. you know, like Jamie and I were indistinguishable up to a certain age, and we used to dress in each other's clothes, and 
Um, you know, and then as soon as it was obvious that I was a girl, you know, he got taken off for sword fighting and I, I didn't get to be a part of that world anymore. So there's a, um, there's an othering that happens in the society of women too, that, um, you know, if, if they're okay with it, then they exist within that binary. But as soon as any woman starts to sort of say like, I don't just want to be this, this binarily separated other and, and starts to kind of occupy the, the middle ground um, like Brienne or um, Cersei in the in the later books when she takes the the power in King's Landing, um, you know, sort of greater or lesser success, but this sense that um, that that's another category that refuses to be respected by certain characters. Yeah, indeed, we can all think of that one character who really is very upset at the fact that Brienne uh, Brienne is a warrior, Mister uh, what's his name. Carly, Tom. Oh, yes. Carly, yeah. <laughs> all, all, all over a great, great guy. He's just. Yeah, he's also quite upset <laughs> that another character is not quite living up to the societal expectations. <laughs> My favorite quote about Randall Tarley is from Sarah herself. His house words are unearned moral superiority. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is good with a sword, so that that that. Uh, and he has a very anything. cool sword with a very cool name to yeah, heart That justifies oh, everything. Yeah. Yeah, well, it kind of does. <laughs> Sam is another, actually, Sam is another interesting case of somebody who, you know, doesn't live up to those those things, probably not by choice, but just by nature and, you know, what that, what that gets him um, or where that gets him. I don't know. But I think the fact that he ends up at the wall is really interesting because the, yeah. the Black Brothers are socially socially deviant, sexually deviant. Some of them, um, the, the rapists and things you get sent there. and um, But yeah, also somehow responsible for like the, <laughs> the, the you know, complete survival of the realm um, by keeping the wall standing. Yeah, the scum of the realm. Mm-hmm. A bit like the bloody mummers, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Poor Sam. Sam is, I think, just being a Tarly was his misfortune because if he were just anyone else, once he was bookish, they would have sent him to the city, uh, to the maesters, no worries. But because he was Tarly's kid, that was unacceptable. He's like, you're a Tarly. You don't scrape and you don't scrape and bow to other people. You better you were dead or at the wall, you know. And it's just. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. It's unfair. And then he goes to the wall and they hate him because he's fat. And they're like, you know, you shouldn't be here. Well, then where else is he supposed to go? Huh? Yeah. 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 If you don't belong at the wall, right? <laughs> yeah, right let's say, let's say bye to Matt. Let's say bye, Matt. Hi, guys. Hi, Matt. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's an interesting that uh, Randall doesn't think that Sam fits into what he wants him to and then that he should rather be dead and that's a very strict idea of a category structure i suppose and like and robert says that about um bran as well uh, which prompts joffrey to hire an assassin to kill bran that he should rather be dead than a cripple than a cripple allegedly allegedly (laughs) (laughs) robert apologizes I would suggest, actually, speaking of Robert, that he, for me, is another character who is kind of just a normie. Like, he's just firmly within the 
expected structure of Westerosi. He doesn't seem monstrous to me at all. Like he's Good King loud. Robert. Yeah, like he's just he's like he's just kind of. I think that's a pretty good point that he's kind of like the ideal Westerosi man in a lot of ways, I suppose. And and people do look, look back fondly on his rule, not because of anything he did, but because of the stability that he his reign kind of enjoyed. Yeah. And I suppose in a shallow way, he is kind of like the perfect king you would maybe hear about in a fairy tale, like strong and handsome and like always laughing and giving people gifts and stuff like that. But underneath right. underneath his exterior, there's something a little darker, perhaps. I just, uh, I mean, I he does have, and, and there's other things that he has to him. Like he's a very gregarious person. Um, and then thinking back to like the Grey Rebellion, you know, after Balon, like, I think it's described as like after Balon bent the knee and all that. He's like, he clapped him on the shoulder. was like, good fight and all that. <laughs> Bye. Yeah, yeah he just Str- doesn't seem to have any, like, Malice. contradictory qualities or, or any case. just kind of like, your your standard West Earthy dude, bro. Like, I, I don't know. I, he's, a, he's a weird. And I guess, I mean, in some in some ways I've talked about, um, and this is like a, a kind of a, a digression here, but like I've talked about how the the part of the way that Beowulf destabilizes um, Anglo-Saxon heroism is by presenting it working exactly the way that it's supposed to right at the beginning. And then it sort of like falls apart. But I, I wonder if that's not what um, what happens with Robert, where like we start out these novels and our kind of introduction to the world is just like, yep, there's a king and he likes his boobs and he likes his turkey legs and he likes his women, you know, and like that's the, you know, and he loves a good fight and he, you know, <laughs> yeah. on the table and huzzah and it's, it, it, <laughs> you know, and then, yeah, and then it sort of starts to crumble around the edges, but it, it is largely by contrast to like, quote unquote, the way that things are supposed to. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think uh, as this these books, I kind of think of them as kind of deconstructions of the standard fantasy story. Like George like sets up this kind of like I don't know standard fantasy medieval kingdom, and then he like goes like I'm actually <laughs> yeah. all sorts of problems. But it doesn't he? Uh, I mean, isn't me re- misremembering, or is it not in the books that he uh, like? gives Joffrey a beating for uh, killing the cat and uh, and he also like he's like very very intent on killing any Targaryen he ever meets I would argue that that is more normal than what Joffrey does and I'm not advocating the beating of children by any stretch of the I would say that maybe Joffrey is also maybe he's not like completely sane uh, to begin with but uh, maybe he got a bit broken by the by the toxic relationship that his parents uh, had. I yeah. mean, I do feel like toxic masculinity is like right on brand for Westerosi society. <laughs> I mean, like I don't really think that's an aberration necessarily. Like Joffrey yeah. is such a he's such a product of his environment. Like he's got all of these like people around him that influence him. Like the the closest thing to like a decent person i guess is like sandor around him yeah that says something that's it and that's a really bad really right. bad influence yeah 
Can, can we just can we just uh, at least admit that there is some part of nurture that's gone wrong in the nature nurture thing? Oh yeah. Oh. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why I think of Joffrey not in the same way as Gregor. And that and that the and that the Rod, Robert also had a part in that. Oh, certainly. Yeah. certainly. No, I mean I I really think Joffrey is like the sort of the end limit test case of like what happens if you pursue Westerosi quote unquote values to their extreme right so he's again he's sort of like the extremity of the system but like he's the most of Lannister in a lot of respects where like Tywin raised his children and his grandchildren to to be like Lannisters and nobody questions us and we have you know we're we're socially and morally superior just by virtue of the fact that we're Lannisters and you know I'm the king so nobody questions what I do you know and I, I just I think that yeah there's a lot about Joffrey that like the ways that he applies the lessons are obviously you know a little bit beyond the pale but I do think that like the lessons themselves are a, a very um they're sort of laying cultural bare norm. yeah yeah exactly like they're laying bare of those norms but I really do think that they're not like there's there's nothing that he does that's like because he doesn't he doesn't take it out on other nobility the way that the Mad King did. Like I would argue that that was one of the big problems with the Mad King was that he was roasting like other heads of other houses. Not I think we've talked about yeah another box. Not I wasn't around for it obviously, but yeah. It's just like who you know who you're who you're doing it to, and in, I mean in that respect, unfortunately, like Joffrey, like we talked about at the beginning, like we talked about on Creature Chat, like. <laughs> He's 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 well within the bounds, which says a lot about the bounds. But um, but you can see exactly how he got there. I think in a way that with some of the other some of the other more monstrous figures, they're clearly uh, breaking the categories. And I, I think he's he's kind of like the <laughs> the quintessential um, category. Geoffrey yeah. Baratheon, the protector of the realm, <laughs> and what a protector he is. Right. I, uh, I do think given time, Joffrey would have become the next Magor because he had all those tendencies. Like, he would make people fight to the death over land that they were in dispute over. And um, he had some of those, like, really, you know, out there tendencies. Um, yeah, if he I'll have you know, Magor was quite a good king in reality. No. For all, these, <laughs> all these calories. He did build a big castle. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when... Wh- they so feasted for three days, okay? They were full when they died. <laughs> so, so, when, so when does a child become a monster? As soon as they become a, a, an adult. That's a really good up, question. Up until we can then, understand like, the influences. So I think, like, Ramsey is a somewhat good example, considering what happened to him. Yeah. I think he eventually does cross that line. Like, the... I'm sure Ramsey got up to some like pretty awful, you know, killing cats and putting them in his backyard, serial killer type behavior, right? Um, I, I think it's generous to think that Ramsey would have buried whatever animals he killed when he was a child. That's very fair. <laughs> um, but I, I think the point still stands. He, he definitely probably killed <laughs> yeah. animals and maybe even people as like a very young man. Uh, I think eventually, once you get to like Domeric, though, you have to say like. No, okay. the, there's too much there that you've done. Yeah. I 
yeah, I, I think I agree. Children kind of like monsters until they're socialized anyway. So yeah. they begin as monsters and maybe they become people. I wonder, I mean, I, I wonder if we could say like for children, it's how contrary their behavior runs to what they're being taught. So if, you know, your your parental structure, your, you know, sort of rearing structure is teaching you that like you should be kind to animals but you very much are not like that there's an aberration there whereas again with Joffrey like he was taught that you know he was he was free from consequences and that um you know how dare a butcher's boy question him and um so that you know the things that he does are gross and manipulative and you know terrible but they're also like shit that Cersei probably would have you know, I mean, she does, she does back his play on, on that altercation, right? She's like, how dare that butcher's boy touch my son? Like, so, mm-hmm. it, you know, I mean, I, I think he's, he's more like kind of taking the lessons and running with them rather than running contrary to, um, but yeah, that is a really good question. Like at what point does, and I, and I, I imagine it's, you know, the point at which it's no longer like the question of influence is no longer, um, a reasonable one. So whether, you know, whether it's when they come to the age of majority or whether they, you know, gain power like Joffrey did in becoming king or whether, you know, when it's just like when there's nobody left to, to tell them. I think about this yeah. with Arya, especially because she's so close to doing things that are like, like I think of Darian, right? Did Darian need to die the way that he did? You know, like, I, it's hard. That's a good Patrick point. Patrick is raising his hand. Please, Patrick, <laughs> continue. Isn't this a seminar? We're supposed to, like... <laughs> I don't think it's two hours <laughs> in, and all of a sudden you're like, what? Were those the rules? I, did uh, not I don't think so. Okay, so, so I was just... I, while, while, I, while I still remember this, this uh, argument, remember when I said that these people we we follow uh, don't become really interesting be- before they actually become monsters or become have become get get agency. What if children uh, become monsters as soon as they gain agency? Mm. And so what what if what if uh, like when Arya choose uh, gets to choose and chooses something monstrous to do? By herself, uh, without with, with the full reflection of what she's doing, the full so scope of it. Don't have that excuse of I didn't know it was wrong. Exactly. After when, that when, point, they are monsters if they go against the rules. Yeah. Well, yeah, I would exactly. say, yeah, like when for in Arya's case, like not when she kills the stable boy, I wouldn't think because that was oh. reactionary and and sort of panic driven. But I would suggest like when she starts. Um, making her fairy tale wishes with Jack and Hagar. I would say mm. like that's when she becomes weasel is is like it's pretty naughty. Yeah. When when she literally takes on or when she quite like figuratively takes on animal traits to mm. become mm. interesting. Becomes a little weasley. Yeah. Oh Peter's <laughs> now what is happening? <laughs> I, I haven't raised my hand. I just wanted to say about the going uh, sort of contrary to the societal expectations or what you've been taught. And we're talking about Joffrey, but with the 
some of the other monsters like Euron Greyjoy and Ramsay Bolton with those characters, I feel like they delight in being perverse and sort of like breaking conventions and like become being monsters and they revel in it. But I'm not sure if Joffrey falls into that. I think that Joffrey feels that he's kind of, he's the king and he's allowed to do these things and he's not like doing it to be naughty. While yeah, no, I don't, I, I completely agree with that. I don't think anything he does is like, I'm going to do this because I'm not supposed to. I think it's like, I'm going to do this because I can and F you for saying I can't, you know, like it, it, there's a, yeah, there's an entitlement to his, uh, his violence and his evil that, oh my God, Wilson, yes, Wilson. <laughs> Oh, no, I was going to wait until you're done, and then I was just waiting. Oh, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, no, I, I was going to say with, with it. So you said, Sarah, that the kids, when they are taught that what they do is okay, then, you know, they have agency. Is that what you said? Like, um, uh, Joffrey does these horrible things, and he's it's reinforced by his mother, who says, well, you know, how dare anyone touch him? He's better, and so forth, right? Um, I do think that the people we mentioned, like Craig, Gregor Clegane, for example, when he burns his brother, that's pretty not okay by any standards, but he gets away with it. In fact, it's covered up and he's allowed to carry on because the, the father needed a knight in the uh, in the family, right? Same thing with Euron. Euron does horrible things to his younger brother, and I think whether or not people knew, but he gets away with it, and so he continues into adulthood, and that becomes his uh, his, you know... Uh, his way of behaving. So I think, uh, you know, everyone's, they're kind of allowed or they get away with it and then they become actual monsters. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's definitely um, like an enabling that happens for a lot of these characters, either because it's um, beneficial to, to cover it up as you were seeing with, um, with Gregor or whether it's, um, you know, beneficial like for Tywin to have the bloody mummers, you know, at his, at his beck and call or, or kind of to, to be able to unleash them, um, that there is a kind of almost like accommodation of, of this behavior. Um, but no, what I was, what I was suggesting is like for children, like if, you know, when, when are we saying that children are, are becoming like, you know, sort of, um, monstrous adults on their own terms. Like when does that transition happen? I would suggest that it's when they be, then when they start behaving deliberately in contrary to the, the morality that's being instilled in them or the kind of guidelines or the, the structure that's being instilled in them by their caregivers. So, um, like, it, you know, as soon as, like, if Joffrey started handing out bread to the small folk, you know, <laughs> seriously would. <laughs> <laughs> but then, then again, I think maybe you just need to... So, if Cersei is her primary, is Joffrey's primary caregiver, then, then all his behavior is... So 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 and so at least um, acceptable by her by his caregiver. Yeah. Uh, and I would I would I would I would add to that that uh, a a person in one society can become a monster in another society. Like uh, as soon as as Joffrey and the way he was saw the light of day, uh, the people around him with other moralities and cultural influences they would see him as a monster. We as as modern people see him as a monster, at least the, his actions as monstrous, at least, because they are contrary to our culture and what we think of as society, society uh, as a, acceptable in our society. 
That's interesting. Yeah. So the system matters, right? The the kind of external structuring. Paradigm. Yeah. The the, so the beholder. The yeah. It's a, isn't beholder. So something that's okay in Westeros, <clears throat> or something that's within the the social parameters in Westeros, could be deeply aberrant in, you know, Essos, or something that the Dothraki take mm. as you know, like, like the gift giving, right. Or, <laughs> or slavery. I mean, that's another really good example that, um, in Westeros slavery is anathema, but in Slaver's Bay, it's everything. Um, yeah. There's also you know, the, yeah, there's also the play on that with, uh, Kohor and the, the black goat. Uh, I mean, we, which we, we feel connotations if you're in, brought up in a Jew, Jew, Christian, uh, Judeo Christian uh, society, then you would feel connotations towards that being something evil. But mm-hmm. I mean, we don't know if that's but how it's it is. Dead God isn't the black goat of Kohor oh. in the house yeah. of the black and white. But there's but also, but, but then again, there's do also we, do we have the Lazarine. Oh, the lamb. Like, yeah. Yeah, that's like you know very obviously a, a play on you know. Jesus as the as the Lamb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So so I'm just saying that there are plays, and we don't know whether or not we don't get enough <laughs> notions about yes, a death god can be good, but it could also it would be bad, but it could also be merciful, like the, the stranger and the. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm on the wiki of Ice and Fire. The black goat demands daily blood sacrifice. Yeah, I mean he's not a cool. <laughs> well, what sort of blood sacrifices that matters? I think it's children. <laughs> The Kohoric often bring calves, bullocks, and horses so, before the black goat's altars. Okay, like so in nothing, the nothing. traditions of Judaism. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. or you know, um, Greco-Roman or, you know, yeah. European. Yeah. yeah. So I think to kind of circle back to Danny for a second, I mean, I think one of the things talking about this systemic um, imposition and, and the kind of, I think one of the things that makes her so threatening to so many different people is that she... And, and maybe even to herself is that she doesn't really have a fixed system that she exists in. So like she's kind of bringing Dothraki to, to a Westerosi paradigm, but she's also kind of bringing a Westerosi morality paradigm to Slaver's Bay, but she's also not fully Westerosi and she's not fully Dothraki and she's not fully right. So like she is kind of assembling herself and her, her own almost like singular operating system that she's then kind of like importing and imposing on other people that I think makes her like so, so much more disconcerting because she's a hybrid of not only like, Different characters. Like some kind of creature that's been stitched together from all these different parts. Yeah, yeah. And and that like she's not even sure what what parts she you know, I mean, does she have the floppy ears or does she have the <laughs> you know, the the one bared breast or does she have the fucking dragons? You know, I mean it's just it's it's a little bit of everything and, and I think that either she's gonna have to decide or she's just gonna become this agent of chaos because she brings all of these sort of pre-fragmented systems and then attempts to make a, an actionable paradigm out of them. No, it's interesting because in the, at least in the Dungeons and Dragons universe, uh, Tiamat is a the evil god of the dragons that has three heads and it is, and she is a chaos god. Yeah, she's, she's like making it up as she goes along is so 
dangerous in a world that um, that relies so heavily on established paradigms and um, and I, I mean I think it's dangerous for her in addition to, to everyone around her and the more powerful she becomes the more problematic it becomes for her to enforce this like made up non-system of like what she wants to do or like what she thinks is right um, that's informed by by all of these kind of conflicting um, paradigms um, actually, Peter, Tiamat has five heads, one for each chromatic color. Okay, so it's not a perfect comparison with the Targaryens, but... Yeah, okay. It's, but it's yeah. two for two, two for two. Two episodes where I get to, um, actually, that's great. Actually. Um, actually, <laughs> regarding nerd lore. Um, actually, when the Targaryens came from West, uh, from Valyria... They brought five oh, dragons. Dragon. Oh, oh. They're not on the flag, though. I'm actually squared. <laughs> I do think, from a from a you know sort of critical standpoint, though, that's an interesting, if not refutation, at least a complication of the kind of white savior narrative that a lot of people have have imposed on Danny, um, where she's you know bringing this Western morality or this Westerosi narrative and trying to impose it on Slaver's Bay and, and trying to sort of shape them according to her morality, um, which is a very problematic uh, uh, sort of claim to, to lay it at her door. And I do think that there are elements of that and I do think that they're problematic. Um, but I also think that if you, if you really look at the kind of morality or the kind of systemic imposition that she's bringing with her, like <laughs> it, it really is, much more complicated than her um, sort of childhood internalization of this vague memory of Westerosi culture that um, that Viserys has instilled in her. Um, yeah. It would be interesting to see what, say, Tyrion thinks of Danny's court, but but I guess we'll never know. I don't think we will. I, I will say though, I think Danny's um, aversion to slavery and quest for justice and imposing these morals on Slaver's Bay. I think those come from personal experience, being sold and suffering and being hungry. Um, I can see echoes of that in her judgments. Um, I, I know that she does refer to being the uh, rightful queen of Westeros, but I think that's her quest for identity because it's who she is. It's why she was displaced. But um, I don't know. I don't see Danny as someone who values Westerosi culture or um, sayings as superior to those that she interacts with. Definitely not the Dothraki who, you know, she was married to one and she still has them as her Kalsar. I don't see her, um, her, her motive as, you know, bringing her culture to others. I do think that the things that she opposes in Slaver's Bay are because of her personal journey, you know, being, <clears throat> being sold, being raped, being Hurt. I think those things. Um, I, I think those things um, explain her motive more than anything else. And so, I think it's more personal as opposed to um, cultural, perhaps. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with that, and I think that um, you know, it, it. I think that's admirable in a lot of respects, and I, I think it's completely understandable. But I also think it does make her, from a from a kind of a critical standpoint, it makes her more monstrous because she's operating as you suggest on an individual parameter 
you know, and an individualized paradigm that she has constructed out of her own experiences and out of her own self-perception um, and and behaviors rather than, um, so like, you know, is it is it better that she's not enforcing a pre-existing, you know, sort of pre-approved social yeah. paradigm? Yeah, probably probably not, given what we've said about the Westerosi <laughs> paradigm, but, um, yeah. but I do think that, like, she has a very... <sighs> her system is very, um, very unstable the way that she has, um, constructed it. So like we were talking before about the violence that she exacts against the slavers in retribution for the children, um, or, you know, even her attitudes towards like Dothraki slavery, which she seems not to put in quite the same category as like slavers bay slavery, which is, you know, (laughs) slavery is slavery. You know what I mean? Like, so She does have blind spots or, um, yeah, instabilities is, is maybe the best way that I can kind of, and, and maybe that's a flexibility in the system and maybe that's a positive thing, but I do think it makes her a very, um, a very potentially dangerous, like free agent because she is so, she is such a hybrid, um, in so many moral and, and cultural, um, and, and, uh, self-identity respects at this point. But there's also yeah. a, a a like there's also a monstrosity in being like blindly virtuous in a sense that, that you just you you say slavery is bad and I will punish anyone who does it like uh, we see that in in you know also in D and D you can make a you can make a character evil evil or you can make him like so good that he is evil because he follows the laws to certain, such an extent that it, it actually sometimes has an uh, adverse effect. It becomes monstrous. Yeah, zealous. The, the, yeah, zealous. Yeah, yeah, so lawful. So being a lawful character, following mm-hmm. laws doesn't necessarily mean you're good because our laws moral is the yeah. idea. Well, I mean, that's, like a, that's the a Stannis. readily available example <laughs> maybe like the Spanish Inquisition. You would say that they were lawful and they were maybe like executing their idea of bringing about good in the world or at least taking evil out of it but right. they perpetrated quite a lot of horrors I uh, didn't expect that and now I'm leaving now I will never be joining another cast with you on it I hope you know that um, yeah, the Spanish Inquisition those paragons of virtue Oh. That kind of rigid, unflexible morality, right? That that yeah. becomes more of a hindrance than a than a help. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know. Certainly, her her, you know, aberration is a source of power, as we've said for for many of the other characters as well. That the you know the more I think you have to have power to break out of these systems in the first place, and then I think the breaking out brings with it its own. Um, its own kind of power as well. Um, but, but people yeah. also get, you can, there's something really scary about like crusades like that. Like, uh, because other people get caught up in the, in the virtue of it. It is on paper a good thing to do. Uh, but what, what happens uh, in the name of that virtue, of, of that zealousness? 
is is can be horrible, monstrous yeah. even. I think as readers of the books, I think we were all on board for Rob's quest to free his father and sort of get justice on Joffrey. But what happens from that is that the wolves are raiding and pillaging in the Riverlands just as much the, as the lions are. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of on a crusade. Mm. Yeah. Like that, I mean, the resurrection of the faith militant in the last book, right? Like, that's a no bueno situation. <laughs> well. um, I like that description. A no bueno situation. A no bueno situation. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to use that in an essay one day. As described by Dr. Situation no bueno. She calls it a situation no bueno. (laughs) Uh, I think that's the way. Big oopsie. (laughs) Yeah, whoopsie doodle. Um. (laughs) She later goes on to describe Cersei's chapters as, oh no, what are you doing? Cersei. So, uh, just for analogy or comparison purposes, I do think Joffrey is Cersei reborn. Cersei was a bit of a like. I've always tried to find the um, the sympathetic part uh, portion of Cersei's history, and a lot of harm is done to her. She's you know put aside, and and you know there are bad things that are supposed to make me sympathize with Cersei. But even as a kid, she did like some horrible things, and she got her friend killed. And um, I, I just cannot find it in me to sympathize with Cersei anyway. And that's Joffrey for you. Joffrey is, it's just he's just quite quite mean. So um, your your suggestion, Sarah, of reading, um, I got reading uh, Cohen's um, Cohen's uh, other writings, and he wrote one about uh, I think one of his essays was The Promise of Monsters, and in that he was trying to show how monsters are not just, you know, vilified and evil, but also they have an element of uh, redemption in them. Well, maybe not redemption is the word he used, but he was trying to use Cain and um, Grendel as examples, as the fact that they're being outcasts or they're being monsters is, you know, because of the uh, harm they've done, but also because of the personal quest to for acceptance into the society that they're alienated from. And um, I was trying to compare that with some of the characters we mentioned, um, and I cannot think of it in... I cannot find that kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, dynamic with anyone. I tried to find it with Cersei, but um, I, I still cannot tell you what Cersei's motive is. Um, and so... Uh, it's an interesting, interesting theory. This Cohen guy I never came across it until this podcast. So yeah, yeah uh, he's, he's influenced in monster studies for sure. Um, maybe Jamie, maybe Jamie's redemption arc would be. A, I am an skeptical of that. on the level of uh, actual redemption done in the Jamie redemption arc. I don't, yeah, that one's so hard because you like you want to. Oh, but then he pushed a kid out a window. You know, it's like... Uh, my, it's really... Oh, my God. I, there's a time... He's talking to Dylan Payne at one point, and he's like, yeah, I would have totally killed um, Arya for Cersei. And I was like, you're just 
You're making it worse. <laughs> Don't well, talk. Was it, yeah. He was going to do So I think for him, his madness was Cersei and his lust. And it doesn't, like, I don't know what the redemption is there for his, but he wasn't manipulated into doing these things. He just turned a blind eye to all these evils he did because he loved He Cersei. allowed himself to be manipulated. Yeah. He, he let oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> That, no, I think exactly. I think I think he was just he like literally said like you know I'll just put blinders on it doesn't matter none of this stuff matters when it actually does and he let himself be used as a as a weapon you know for the Lannisters for his family and then later on he he you know he's starting to realize that maybe he doesn't want to be that weapon but I mean like there's a lot of damage done buddy he can't. The, yeah. I mean, I, I think Cersei, you know, not to get too Freudian on this, but I really do think that, like, her, her, you know, phallic envy, for lack of a better, you know, like, the, <laughs> that, you know, Jamie got to be the boy. And I, I think that she used Jamie as a surrogate um, for as long as she could. And then I think when Joffrey was born, he became her new surrogate, uh, you know, as a way to have masculine power, wield masculine power. Um, in a, you know, in this world, in a way that she couldn't sort of directly. And then when Joffrey dies, I think she she makes her best effort to um, transcend the surrogacy and and kind of just take it upon herself. And you know, obviously that doesn't um, that doesn't go all that well. But I really think that like yeah, he's he's sort of been well, let's say like a very specific appendage for Cersei <laughs> for a long time. Um, not a hand. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But. So, uh, so isn't like I don't know. I would say more like Tyrion or or Joffrey would be more like a Kane character, like uh, misunderstanding the the hints that are, they're getting getting from the powers that be, uh, and doing horrible stuff in the name of of whomever they're um, trying to please. Oh, like Joffrey and Robert, you think, or uh, Joffrey and Robert and uh, and Tyrion and and Tywin. Like uh, Tyrion obviously looks up to Tywin and wants to please him, and kind of maybe idolizes Tywin, but then he kills him like Cain does with Abel. Okay. So that's a good comparison. So your your guy Cohen brings up Frankenstein and the monster's desire to be loved by Frankenstein, and he's and he's uh, banished, or his quest is the acceptance of those who created him, kind of. Reminds me of uh, Tyrion, who, you know, he is a dwarf, but then the things he does, like whoring and maybe some other, you know, things being, at least being unpleasant, generally unpleasant, I think, uh, is described by Cohen as the quest for the anger of being um, separated from, from society, but also the quest to be accepted by that society and acting out in a way that is, you know... Um, true to the uh to the to the mold they've been casting kind of and uh yeah. i see that Tyrion a lot that's such a fantastic comparison yeah I, and and i think it's interesting too on a on a sort of a closer level that um the way that the monster seeks to to earn that place in society is through reading right like that he reads like yeah he can um but yeah, I, I, there's this, there's this like almost Oedipal kind of thing with, uh, you know, not competing over the mother, obviously, but like the, this rivalry that Tyrion has with Tywin, where 
it almost seems like if he thinks he can outdo him or kind of like out Tywin Tywin that he'll prove yeah. his worth. But I feel like that's almost the worst possible thing that you could do with Tywin. Yeah. So it's this very like self emulating like kind of. literally one of the worst human beings and trying yeah. to become him. It's like, buddy, that's not what the point is. Yeah. You're yeah. just gonna make yourself unhappy. Well, and then also like Tywin probably wouldn't take it all that well either if Tyrion oh, yeah, actually managed to outdo him. Yeah. But that would also result in like a, that would also result in like a, in the, the death of the father ideal that, that happens to every boy that that if you finally beat them in chess then yeah. some sort of part of you like the 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 part that is a child that looks up to your dad uh, will will mourn that moment basically yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think that happens here he sees his father as a as a flawed human being that that should. <laughs> Fangs is his girlfriend. Uh, <laughs> well, at the end, yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah, at the end, that's the like, the death uh, nail in, right? It's uh, because yeah, up the until death of then, the father think, ideal. Yeah, up until then, I think he idolizes Tywin. Like, I, I know he hates him, but he also like idolizes him in Tyrion's eyes. I think, um, and Tywin truly is is um, like, I, well. We could do a whole podcast on Ty, uh, Tywin, but I do think Tyrion oh. idolizes him. Oh, I just just wanted to say that I gotta go now. So thank okay. you for this discussion. It's been very very interesting, and looking forward to listening to it again once it comes out. Yeah, thank you so much. I I think unless anybody has any final points, our our podcast uh, threatens to become monstrous in overspilling its boundaries. Um, <laughs> so maybe this is a good this is a good opportunity um, to wrap it up. Does anybody have any final thoughts? I I think there's a lot more to be mined, but um, maybe our our listeners will continue to think on their own and share their thoughts with us. Indeed. I have nothing else to add. No, I, I think I think uh, as a bonus to what you uh, you've talked about in in, in this uh, essay here, I think uh, I think there's a lot of like uh, social sciences uh, that that could also explain a lot of the the actions of of a lot of people here. And I think uh, well, Henry Teufel is one of them, and uh, and Sigmund Bauman is also like two great thinkers within the, the whole community thinking and how we react to not being a part of it. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. I think we should add, um, we should add some suggestions to the show notes if you wouldn't mind um, sending them along. Cause I, I think that this is a fascinating topic and widely applicable um, beyond, beyond a song of ice and fire and also within it. Um, so yeah, I would like to thank all of my co-hosts um, for joining me for this third installment of uh, Vassals of Kingsgrave Seminar of Ice and Fire. Um, we hope there will be more of the series in the future, along with all the other awesome Vox content that is in the works. Um, if you'd like to find out more about our upcoming episodes, join the conversation, um, maybe join a cast, or just come say hi, you can find us on the Vassals of Kingsgrave community on Discord, um, and we would love to see you there. So on that note, this is Dr. Blood saying goodbye and thank you for listening.